0: Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic conversation show. John Suntris here, good double feature for you today. We're going to be talking to Matt Hawkins of Top Cow and Tom King of DC Comics. Matt Hawkins, uh, you know as the publisher and writer of many Top Cow books. Uh, Lady Pendragon back in the day for Image Central. But uh, his Top Cow work includes things like Wildfire, Think Tank, and... And the new book, The Tithe, that's starting in April, really neat book, uh, a caper book involving cybercrime and megachurches. Uh, Matt has a very interesting background in science and uh, military tech, and I'm going to let him get into that. Uh, we also get his view of uh, how things are working in comics today for TopCow. Topcow is a leaner operation than it was a few years ago, and uh, we just kind of get a state of TopCow report from Matt and a lot of his philosophies on comic book writing. I think really good information that will help a lot of us out uh, that are uh, struggling with the idea of writing comic books and yeah, include me with that. And uh, also that whole thing of, because I'm a big believer now of uh, wrapping up stories and he kind of makes a counter argument of uh, why it's important for uh, certain independent books to have more than one volume. So really neat information from Matt Hawkins to start things off uh, on Word Balloon today. Then we're going to talk to Tom King. Tom is co-writing Grayson with our pal Tim Seeley. Tom's a pal as well. Once a Crowded Sky was his uh, superhero novel. It uh, catapulted him to do work for Vertigo and DC. And he's doing that now on uh, books like uh, Grayson and Teen Titans. He's working with Will Pfeiffer on the annual and moving forward in Teen Titans. He's also going to be doing work on the Omega Men once uh, DC reboots. And uh, Tom provides me the opportunity to lay on the couch and uh, gripe about some of the things I haven't liked about uh, the new 52 two. And he uh, assures me that things are changing, and there really is big differences and changes coming to uh, the DC Universe uh, post-convergence. So uh, it's good to hear from Tom. It's a nice, loose conversation, and it's a great way to wrap things up on today's Word Balloon. Today, it's brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, as always, for your support. Uh, If you'd like to support Word Balloon, go to patreon.com slash wordballoon, and uh, if you could spare a dollar a month, that'd be great. Word Balloon is free. It's always going to be free, but uh, if you want to help out and you enjoy the the programming here. It's a great easy way to do it. Going to patreon.com/slash WordBalloon. WordBalloon is also brought to you by Instock Trades. At InstockTrades.com. There are great deals going on at Instock Trades. Uh, you can get 70% off Select IDW titles, 45% off all DC and Marvel titles. Also, uh, you can get 70% off Select Image titles, and lots more deals, including these books. You can get the Shaolin Cowboy hardcover, The Shemp Buffet from Jeff Darrow. It's 50% off. It's just $9.99. One of my favorite Marvel series from the 70s was Supervillain Team-Up. Uh, you can get the Supervillain Team-Up Unite complete trade paperback, 50% off, $17.49. Lots of really good work in there, including late work from the late Bill Everett. Uh, you can get X-Files, Year Zero. The trade paperback is 30% off, $13.99. From Jonathan Luna, you can get Alex and Ada, Trade Paperback, Volume 2, 42% off. It's $7.53. From Dark Horse, Conan, Volume 17, Shadows Over Kush, 42% off, $14.99. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. If you want more deals, check them out for yourself at InStockTrades.com. All right, let's get things started with our conversation with Matt Hawkins. This is a long time coming, as I tell him at the beginning of uh, the conversation. Um, Matt has had not been aware of Word Balloon, which is cool with me. There's a lot of uh, different podcasters out there as we talk about. But uh, I'm glad that we finally got a chance to sit down. And I think he's a really interesting guy with a lot of interesting information to share. Matt Hawkins on writing for Top Cow and writing in general – Right now on WordBone. Truly, the TIDE uh, really uh, intrigued me, and I'm like, oh, there you go. I'm like, good reason to bug Matt Hawkins again. Let me let me get on the phone. This is good, good timing.
1: You know, I just uh, we just sent TIDE number one uh, to. I just sent it to the letter yesterday for the first issue script, and I've been working on the second issue script today, so it's very much on my mind as we uh, talk.
0: Excellent, excellent. I might even keep all this if you don't mind in the interview. Of course. Excellent, well, there you go, so then I'll give you an official Matt Hawkins uh, welcome to word Bull. okay, thank you. thank you very much for coming on, man truly.
1: Oh, happy to do it i uh, I actually uh, I listen to about fourteen different podcasts regularly and about twenty occasionally, so I am a uh, heavy, heavy podcast listener. I love listening to them while I'm working.
0: Do you listen to my show?
1: I will now. this is the first time All right, that's when our- you emailed me It's the first I heard of it you know i to uh, uh, the top cow podcast, I listen to a couple of the other comic related podcasts um but uh, most of the podcasts I listen to are like military ones, like uh, geopolitical ones and, and stuff like that. But uh, the comic ones, uh, you know, there's about 50 of them now
0: and uh, they all kind oh, of say the me. same thing. Um, yeah, you're being – first of all, you're being incredibly conservative. There's like 50 okay ones. <laughs> oh, really? Is, is there more
1: than 50? There's hundreds. Like, oh, yeah.
0: Oh, the, oh, I'm sure there are. You know, man, the um, – Chris Neisman uh, used to do a show called Around Comics – and he used to say that he thinks he thought at the time, and this was even like in two thousand nine or two thousand eight, that there were more comic book podcasts than movie critic podcasts. And I kind of agreed with him. And new ones keep popping up all the time. It's it's insane. I've been doing this for ten years.
1: Wow! Oh wow! You know, then definitely I will I will add it to my uh, queue. Are you available
0: oh. through the iTunes Store? Oh yes, I'm. Yeah, I'm at, at those usual haunts, absolutely. So very cool. Yeah, man. No, this is great. And, and truly, like, uh, when, when Philip was still with your uh, company, Philip Sablik, who now is at Boom, had him on a few times uh, back during uh, a couple pilot seasons over the years. And frankly, and it, we'll get into it as we're talking now and everything, I was always pleased that, like, a lot of my friends would be working at your company and, like, Hester doing The Darkness and uh, Ron Mars doing uh, Witchblade and Artifacts. But what Top Cow was initially known for, they just, I don't know, they just didn't speak to me. It's funny, I heard your Nerdist Writers Panel interview, and you even said, you know, we really haven't been doing TNA for a, a long time. Right. And it's cool that I think a lot of your concepts like Think Tank and Wildfire and certainly The Tithe are steps away from that. And I appreciate – I always like those concepts more so than the times that I wanted to read Darkness or Witchblade because you'd be hiring guys that I really respect and like, like Hester and, and Ron Mars, but I just couldn't get into the characters, and I really was getting more into the, the side stuff that Top Cow was putting out.
1: Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, I have to say I, I feel kind of the same way. <laughs> I mean, if you look at what I write, you can see the kind of stuff I like, obviously, and it tend, it, it kind of is marrying what you're saying there. Um, I, you know, I came to Top Cow in 1998. Um, I, I was publishing through uh, Image Central on my own. I was writing a book called Lady Pendragon. Um, yep. And they had created uh, Witchblade, I think it was in '95, and The Darkness in '96. So very much sort of uh, in in the mid '90s, Ether. You know, Witchblade was very much known of Mike Turner's sort of debut um, and, and sure. Ascension. Um, and uh, so, you know, I sort of came into that and sort of managed that uh, for fifteen years. You know, I mean, I've been at the company now for seventeen, sixteen, seventeen years, and okay. uh, so it's it's been it's been a long time, but the the point being is those were the books that were selling. You know, I know from sure. talking to Silvestri that in, uh, in 95-ish when Witchblade sort of hit, there was a decision internally at Top Cow to sort of switch away from Cyberforce, Weapon Zero, and books like that because uh, it was sort of realized that Marvel and DC really sort of are going to always own those types of spandex heroes. Uh, sure. And they wanted to counter-program and go for Supernatural and they, uh, at the time, I got to give Sylvester credit, he was way ahead of the curve. Because if you look at a lot of the stuff um, on TV in the last six, seven, eight years, it has followed that pattern. You know, I mean, Witchblade, the television show, was uh, very much ahead of its time. And, Damn good show. Yeah, absolutely. Short lived, you know, short lived, and uh, it was depressing because uh, it was, it's the highest rated TNT show to ever be canceled and the reason it was canceled was cuz the uh the uh lead actress had some uh, rehab issues and couldn't be bonded so um it was uh, it was a very frustrating situation for us cuz we had a tv show on the air that was doing well and you know yeah. the the goal of that is to keep it on the air and uh so we Sort of moved around, and you know, there was a period in the in the early 2000s where we were doing a lot of uh, third-party stuff. I mean, Witchblade and Darkness were continuing, obviously, in, into the high numbers, but uh, we did Rising Stars with J. Michael Straczynski, we did Midnight Nation with him, we did uh, Wanted yep. with Mark Miller before he really took yep. off with his uh, creator own stuff. We did a number of sort of uh, what I call the third-party projects, which sort of took... Uh, Took sort of front stage at Top Cow for a number of years, and not not I wouldn't say overshadowed, but kind of like you said, just took the uh, took the sort of the lead and the spotlight away from those sort of supernatural books we were doing. Um, And then uh, then there was a shift, you know. And I'm trying to think of when it was, but uh, four or five years ago, it it started with the pilot season stuff. I know I remember having a conversation where I sat down with Philip Sablik at the time and said, uh, you know, we need to do something else because uh, the Supernatural thing is kind of coming to a close. There's too much of it. There's too many of these companies that are knocking us off and doing things like we are. And then there were companies, you know. And see, that was the weird thing for me is we were still being blamed for TNA shit. We weren't even doing it. And then there were companies right. like Xenoscope out that were just embracing it wholeheartedly, <laughs> and they weren't yeah. being given shit for it. So I, yeah. I had this tremendous sort of crisis of uh, identity for myself and the company. When I looked at that, I'm like, How can these guys do stuff that's so blatant and just get away with it? And people are like, uh, you know, almost applauding them for for uh, taking like a feminist stand in their stuff when we were given an inordinate amount of shit for a number of years for doing stuff that was never even that racy. You know, I mean, yeah. and the thing was, was, was there some racy stuff published? Yeah, of course there was. I mean, in the late 90s, there was the bad girl thing. And, you know, we were certainly involved in some of that. And there were a lot of covers. And, you know, and, and the funny thing was, uh, and I, I sort of dealt with this in the late 2008, 9, 10 phrase, where we'd get covers from artists. And I'd say, hey, do you want to do a Witchblade variant or Witchblade cover? And then they would send us this thing that was her in the chainmail and bikini. And I'm like, you know, we didn't even ask for that. They just, they just assumed that's what we would want. Um, sure. and, uh, so it was just, there was sort of this weird, weird transitional period. And then, uh, you know, kind of on a whim cause Philip wanted to do his books and he had like last mortal and he had like these sort of side projects. The interesting thing was, uh, there were some attempts at stuff that kind of failed, you know, the, uh, I like the Phil Hester run on the darkness, but, uh, you know, I really, my favorite run on the darkness ever was the David High and Jeremy Hahn run. And that okay. that Han was pro- that that run was uh, uh, the lowest selling run we'd ever had, you know. And uh, so it, it's one of those things where I had to look at that and say, "Here's this supernatural tentpole of Top Cow that we sort of took in this horror direction. I really, really liked it. It's not doing well. So then I started wondering with those types of books if I was sort of an anti barometer. Okay, if I like this, then he's just going to fail, you know. And I right, started thinking right. that way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh that's that's a hard you know it's look you, you you try a lot of different things. I mean the thing people don't understand about independent publishers is we don't you know we're able to react quickly but uh because of that we do react quickly. You know we get feedback and we change things um and uh you know and we change creative teams and we do various things to try to keep things going. I mean the hardest thing with a long running title like a Witchblade that runs for 15 18 years is that uh you know they're wild swings in quality. You know, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll put Witchblade and Darkness against anything published by any other publisher. There are arcs of Witchblade and Darkness that I think are just fantastic, you know. Uh, sure. But then there are arcs that I think are not not as good, you know. So there are, and I think the same thing with any long-running title can be said. You, you, look, you read certain arcs, they're not as good as other arcs, and there's arcs you like better than others. Um, that's the, sort of the... The hard thing about being a publisher of a long running title is, is trying to maintain a, a quality level. Um, and it's very hard to get someone to try to read a title they've never read before if it's in the hundreds. It's also very sure. hard to get someone to reread a title they quit. So, you know, it's, it's, it's that's that kind of thing where, you know, and, and when I wrote Think Tank, it's, God, that's when I first started Think Tank, I think it was like five years ago. You know, I go back and I reread that stuff now and I realize. At the time, it was super cutting edge, and now it seems kind of quaint, you know. Uh, some of the <laughs> some of the technology, um, but yeah, and, and it's right. kind of yeah. it's kind of sad because I'm preparing to write the fourth volume, and Rasan and I are working on that now. And uh, I went back and reread the first three volumes. And I'm like, oh man, some of the stuff. Because when I started writing that stuff four or five years ago, drones were unheard of, you know. They were, sure. and, and now they're so ubiquitous, and everyone, you know, I, I was oh. seeing to the thing that how. They
0: were floating over the Eiffel Tower today, and no one knew where they were from. You know, so, and also all these private drones that are popping up that are screwing with airspace problems and everything. I mean, God, I know London had to change its laws and stuff, and you know, I'm sure eventually the FAA will get more involved in everything if they haven't already.
1: Yeah, they they actually the FAA released a a new guidelines that's online. Those are the kind of things I love to skim through. You know, there you go. I actually <laughs> uh, just downloaded uh, right before we hopped on Skype the uh, Pentagon's new budget. Because I'm curious to see where they're going to be spending their money, um, and uh, if you actually, it's 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 a god awful boring thing to trudge through. But there's little things in there that don't make sense, and when you and those are the things where when you dig into them, you can find out really interesting things. Like uh, several years ago, three or four years ago, when I was looking, I'm like, why was there a domestic? There was a, a number for domestic drone operations that was almost larger than the international drone operations. And I'm like, why? Why are they spending so much money on domestic drones? And then you know, six months later, the the border patrol and all that sort of stuff was announced, and uh, that thing's just been a colossal waste of money. I, I I was reading today, actually, same same sort of thing where uh, we've arrested uh, some illegal aliens coming up from Mexico across the border, but it's costing something like seventy five to a hundred thousand dollars per arrest. Wow! Because they're flying. See, they they did this dumb shit. They <laughs> built all these drones three four years ago, and they built these predator sized drones, the the big ones, but with, without the missiles. Just to do the reconnaissance. And if they'd have waited two years, they could have built all the small ones. Because they have all these small drones that are much much more economical. You know, you can buy a drone now for a few hundred bucks and fly it over a couple hundred mile area. Right. You know, but they bought (laughs) these drones for millions and millions of dollars with massive maintenance and all these things. So they have all these things that they just paid for three years ago that are almost mothballed.
0: So drones are the new $12,000 toilet seats, basically.
1: You know, it's funny you said that. I, I, I can defend the $12,000 toilet seat,
0: you know, because the thing is, is uh, I, I... Is that Black Ops? Is that like really, all right, no, that $12,000 toilet seat is really, you know, paying for something that we don't know about?
1: No, it's not even that. It's, it's the engineering and design. Like if you're talking about a $12,000 toilet seat on a NASA spacecraft or something that requires some sort of special usage in sure. terms <laughs> of uh, low gravity use... I mean, you know, ah, yeah. I, I, you know, my dad was an engineer for the military, so I know yes. he worked for Rockwell and he, he worked on missiles and, and planes and all kinds of shit. And I grew up on military bases. So I've spent my whole life looking at that stuff. So back in the late eighties, early nineties, when people started really bitching about those $12,000 seats, my dad gave me a very quick lecture about, none no, you don't understand. That's uh, it's the same reason why drugs cost billions. The first drug costs a billion dollars. You know, it's the second one that costs 12 cents.
0: Right. No. Well, yeah. R&D and everything. Yeah. 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 No, I get that. It is your fascination with all these other things that I have to confess I hadn't read Think Tank, but what I heard about the tithe, and then also hearing your interview on Nerdist Writers Panel with uh, Heath and uh, Adam Beecham and stuff, I'm like, shit! I got to really like dig through. So you know, we we could talk now and down the road. I'm sure we will be talking about Think Tank and stuff. When when do you think the fourth volume of Think Tank will be? coming out? You see, just getting started writing it. Right?
1: Uh, probably August. You know, I think okay. August will, maybe September. Uh, I'm, I'm targeting August. I'd like to have something to show uh, at Comic-Con, which I think is first sure July. So we're working out now. R- Tithe was always intended as a four issue thing between Think Tank arcs that R- Rizan and I were going to do. Um, he's actually done with that. All okay. four and issues I kind of think- are done. Okay. He's drawn all four of them. Um, and, w- and when does issue one come out? April 15th. Uh, Okay. cool. For tax day, that was kind of when I looked at the schedule, I said we're going to put it out first week of April. But then I bumped it to the second because I'm like, you know what, let's put that out on tax day since it has to do with money and churches and stuff. So I thought that was kind of fun.
0: No, absolutely, man. No, I I, uh, my beyond uh, flipping past them on Sunday mornings. My only mega church experiences was seeing I think the Crystal Cathedral in LA when I was on an LA trip years ago, and then uh, seeing the documentary Jesus Camp. Oh my and gosh. S- <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's scary. Then, yeah. So so that's the thing. So no, these are fascinating, these mega churches, and certainly the one of the guys in Jesus Camp certainly got uh you know, uh, caught up in some typically unfortunate sex that scandals. that Ted Haggard, know.
1: right? Wasn't that the guy? Ted Haggard, yeah. yes, I, yes, yes. I've actually met Ted Haggard. He's an interesting fellow. Uh, oh, no shit.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah, I, so, yeah, what? Do, tell me about your fascination with megachurches, please. Um, yeah.
1: You know, well, here, it, it, give you just a quick history. I, I was uh, raised Christian, uh,
0: Southern okay. Baptist,
1: and uh, from birth, you know, and I was sort of never really given a choice. We went to church two, three times a week. My parents didn't want me listening to rock music, you know. It, wow. was, it was that whole thing where my friends were all the, the other kids in the church group. I sang in the choir, um, so I, I, it was full on. And, and my dad was in the military, so we were very sheltered because we were on military bases. I was in military schools, uh-huh. and uh, so it was uh, it was an interesting sort of childhood. And then I went off to college, went to UCLA, and uh, joined a fraternity and. As typically people do in college, I kind of forgot about Jesus and Christ and all that stuff <laughs> and got drunk and tried to figure out how to get laid and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, when, when I got out of college, you know, this is a pretty, pretty typical arc for a lot of people. I started like, uh, you know, I started missing the church and the environment because uh, it was sort of part of my social life. And then once, once I was off... Particularly once I started getting into my graduate work, Um, you know, there's not that social environment as much. You know, I actually had to I had to move out of the fraternity house because I couldn't I just couldn't deal with it. Um, And uh, so, um, you know, I got back into the church in my early 20s and sort of started doing it. Not as hardcore as I was when I was a kid, but uh, it was just, you know, went to church every Sunday and then kind uh, 1996, six seven i started i I wanted to do this uh, king arthur Arthurian legend thing I was always obsessed with it. you know, I was at extreme Studios at the time working with Rob Liefeld and uh, uh-huh. at the launch of image i 've actually start, i was at the almost the very start of image and uh, sort of was a whole part of that since 93. and um, then when I started doing all the reading for Lady Pendragon, I read a book called Holy Blood Holy Grail, and then started reading the Gnostic Gospels and And then started one book would lead to another book. It was pre-internet, you know, so you'd read a book and then it would have footnotes and annotations for other books. And then you would go track down these other books, you know, and actually had to drive to obscure bookstores and because there wasn't even an Amazon back then, you know, so sure (laughs) it it was a whole different ballgame. I mean, I, I would, I would call to New York, some crazy bookstore and they would ship me a book. And uh, I mean, it was, was, it's so, I gotta tell you, it's it's, the internet's an amazing thing because doing the research for that book took me six months and that would take me two hours now. You know, oh, yeah. and uh, yeah. so but the process of doing that research and reading all those books, I really, I was sort of a, of uh, I was exposed to all this material that and all these things, and then I started reading Dawkins and and hit you know and and uh, Hitchens and and some of these other authors that were atheists, and uh, right. so I just I really started questioning a lot of the tenets that I would raise to believe, you know, and uh, so that sort of led to a, about a year later, I just kind of looked at it and said, this is all you know, I'm sorry. I I don't know if I'm pissing on your beliefs, but uh, I, I just kind of looked at it and I said, this is all a bunch of fairy tale nonsense. And uh, so from then on, I've kind of never looked back, you know, and uh, to the consternation of my parents and uh, many of my loved ones who are still very much involved in all that and believe in that. Oh, wow. But, uh, I, you know, I'm not sort of a uh, militant atheist. I, I kind of respect other people's beliefs and, uh, So, just, you know, I'm not one out trying to unconvert people. Um, You know, it's weird for me because one of my good friends from high school, uh, I actually saved as part of the Harvest Crusade. I was one of the counselors for the Harvest Crusade in the late 80s, and I I actually led him to Christ. And now he's like big time into it and freaking out because I'm not. (laughs) Wow. So, it's this whole thing, but. to circle back around, I, I never really ever went to a mega church. I, I, I saw the harvest crusade, uh, which is, a, is, it's kind of a mega church. I saw that sort of grow from its infancy from a very small church in Riverside, California to this huge thing that would sell out Coliseums. And that to me was kind of the birth of some of this mega church stuff. So I've seen it. Agreed. Uh, Rob Liefeld, who I've, I've known since, you know, my early part of my career days, uh, went to a church called Mariners and, uh, in Orange County. And that was kind of a mega church. So I went with him there a few times. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of aware of these churches. I, I I never was really a part of them. The reason why I set the tithe and I know that's a long history of explanation of where I'm getting to, but the point with the tithe is I, I just, I love the movie, the town. I love Michael Mann movies. Yes. I love the heat, uh, yes. you know, not the heat the heat. I love those heat, movies. Yes. And I, I sure. wanted to do, and Rasan and I were talking about taking a break from sort of this heavy, geopolitical technological kind of stuff we were doing with think tank i said let's do something a little more fun let's do like a high story and he's like oh that sounds great and so i started doing some research trying to figure out well i don't want to do another bank bank heist because there's nine freaking trillion of those (laughs) and then i started thinking about art museums to see if i could figure out a new way to get into that then i realized looking into that there's nine trillion of those too um so i wanted to do a high story that had sort of a different setting and the megachurch thing didn't come to me right away. I started uh, just Googling uh, cash reserves and, and things like that or large sums of cash, piles of cash, trying to see where else people would have cash. you know. And uh, I just finally stumbled across this thing where it said some $300 billion were given last year and half of it was cash to churches in the United States. Wow. And I was thinking about it, three hundred billion dollars. I'm like, and so hundred and fifty billion dollars in cash flow, flowed through churches in the United States last year, or actually, no, it's 2012. I don't know if they have 2013 stats yet. But um, so that seemed like enough money to me. And I said, oh, well, where would the most money be? And then I started looking around at church budgets, and then uh, the Joel Osteen Church down in Texas popped up, and a couple other ones sure. popped up. And, you know, I didn't even realize the Crystal Cathedral was, uh, wasn't a megachurch anymore. It was bought by uh, the Catholics. It's, oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's not that guy's big church anymore. It's a, it's a Catholic uh, thing now. Robert whatever his name was. Yeah, they're was. gone. Yeah, that's, okay. that's gone. So, um, but, uh, you know, and then you look at things like that. Crystal Cathedral cost $200 million to build. You know, so I mean, some yeah. of these just these yeah. massive monuments of uh, of decadence, you know, and they're supposed to be religious Absolutely. institutions. So that that was why mega churches were chosen as the setting. And then I started thinking about, well, you know, how can I rob churches without pissing off Christians, you know, in the storyline? Because a lot of people, whether they're active or not, would would object to something like that. So I Understood. came up with the idea of a Robin Hood type character that was actually robbing from churches that were already being investigated by the FBI for fraud. And so what happens, and all this is learned very quickly in the storyline, is there's this hacker group that ha- called Samaritan that's run by this one woman. Now, the FBI thinks it's, it's profiled it as a guy. So that's one of the main storylines is that the, the whole time, through the whole issue until they're into end of the series, they think it's – now, the reader knows right away it's a woman. But the whole storyline, they're constantly talking about this guy, him, this, that, and the other thing. And then when you pan over, it's this little cute girl. Um, and uh, she basically hacked in into the FBI mainframe and their, sister, their servers and stole this fraudulent church list that they were working on. But, you know, it's, it's hard to do stuff like that when you're following the rules. So she started stealing the money from these churches electronically through wire transfers and started just sending it to various charities she deemed more worthy. Um, and uh, after doing this to a few churches, they found out about it, obviously. And so and this all takes place before the story starts. Then our two leads, one of them is Dwayne Campbell, who's this sort of 50-ish black guy, uh, a little bit older, but good guy, actually, and he's the believer in the storyline, and uh, he's sort of the rock of the story. His partner is a 30-year-old white kid who's kind of this hacker punk, and uh, he's – He's an atheist, so they have kind of this comedic interchange between the two characters throughout the storyline. But he's one of those guys that when he was 15 was busted himself for busting into the FBI, and they flipped him uh, as a hacker. So he's supposed to be like the lead hacker guy on the FBI's force, but uh, this girl is kicking his ass, and it drives him nuts. And so it was his list – he was the one investigating the churches for fraud, for for electronic fraud. She stole his information on these churches and then stole the money and gave it to other people. He, in turn, found that out and they returned the money. So all this happened before the story starts. The story starts basically with a robbery, a physical robbery. So what she decides to do is she enlists some old uh, classmates of hers. They're all like foster kids. Um, And they – Set up this sort of town esque kind of small group that's raiding these churches to steal money because that's they are awesome. stealing the cash because if you steal the cash, you know it's it's you give cash anonymously to
0: various sources so
1: it would be impossible to return it.
0: I understand. No, that's fantastic, and and you're right. I mean that's that's the thing. A lot of classic uh, crime tropes because of advancements in technology just don't work anymore. And I love reading a lot of, you know, like when Darwin Cook was adapting the Donald Westlake, the Parker novels and stuff, and I know he still is, um, a lot of the things that are done in there that were just, you know, happenstance for for pulp stories and stuff, you can't get away with anymore because, you know, I mean, uh, IDs are much more, uh, you know, technolog- technologically advanced than they were back in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, the stuff you said, like there wasn't an Amazon and stuff, and and just the you, the actual handling of large sums, sums of money Just doesn't happen. So it is tough to really find a location that makes sense. And you've got partially cybercrime and and actually handling of cash, obviously, in a story like The Tithe. So it it works on both levels. Yeah, and it's like one leads
1: to the other. It's like, you know, if if you you can combat cybercrime and so you put someone in a hole to where they can't do their cybercrime anymore how they want, then what do they do? And then they resort to old school. It kind of reminded me of uh, we did this story called Crosshair. which got set up for a film and then died, like so many things. But uh, it was uh, the idea that story, it was one of Silvestri's ideas. Was he, he was toying with the idea that in uh, Spycraft, because everything is so high-tech now, that mm-hmm. the, uh, the best way to do modern Spycraft is to go old school. You know, if, if you're worried about an email being tracked, your phone being bugged, then maybe doing the old school drop under the bridge with an envelope and a photo is the way to go. You know, so, um, cool. and that I thought was always a sort of cool concept. And I've always had that in the back of my head is that sometimes low tech beats high tech. And I use that in think tank too, because one of, one of the funniest things I've ever seen was this YouTube video that briefly lived in 2009. I think it was. And, uh, I'm sorry. It's like 2011. And it was uh, it was a Predator drone. This Air Force airman had basically left it hovering over some sand dune while he went to take a whiz. It's it's, a it's one of these Air Force uh, (laughs) urban legends. I don't even know if it's true, but it's a funny story. And I heard the uh, I saw the video before they took it down. Basically, there's this Predator drone that's hovering over the sand dune. And these two guys, these two Arabs, basically, you see them come over with a ladder. They crawl up to where this thing is at, and they beat it with baseball bats or whatever some sort of bats until this thing falls down and so you're seeing this you know two two million dollar item that's being beaten with something that that's been around for ten thousand years. You know this mean? is like clubs and a, and a stepladder, you know and uh <laughs> It's just because and, and I think what what someone told me sort of uh, off the record was that that's what instituted the policy that they no longer hover these uh, drones at, at below 100 meters. Makes sense. Yeah, you know, it's just a little thing. <laughs> like I said that that could be urban legend. It's a good story regardless. I don't I don't know I like the story it. behind it, but I did I did physically see that video and I I've not forgotten it. And it's sort of the idea of low tech beat high tech, you know.
0: That's cool. No, and also smart uh, making uh, the the hero or the Robin Hood hacker and stuff a woman because that's that's another question I wanted to ask you is in in this environment now where and also I mean you know this and, and a lot of your stories by the way and I do know this there's there's always been a lot of diversity in uh, a lot of Top Cow comics and also um, you know you've 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 got protagonists like uh, you know Witchblade and um, oh God I'm uh, I'm forgetting uh, there's Who's the other, who's the angel in the, the uh, yes, yeah. angel, exactly, there you go, because um, yeah, forgive me, artifacts, exactly, stuff like that, I, you know, um, do you, I remember reading, you know, grief that Top Cow would get for TNA books back in the day, and even some residue where, and it might have been a crossover between Witchblade and, it wasn't, it, maybe it was a crossover with another company since then and i really do think that there are a lot of good examples of modern top cow stories that don't objectify women and that you you've got women in important roles i know that the one pilot season uh winner twilight guardian twilight guardian yeah. was another good example of a, of a strong female character and i and i don't know like do you guys do you guys still get grief for any uh
1: residue uh so, or yeah. like, what, what's the,
0: what's the current attitude there's
1: still uh you know, I think uh, I, I I still see some of it. You know, and there's still some people <laughs> on there. It's it's like there's these same people I see on there bagging on Rob Liefeld's lack of drawing feet from 20 years ago, and I'm like, 100%. get over yep. it. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I yeah. some of these people I always wonder why why they have so much free time on their hands, and I always ask that all the time when I when, when I see so many things, I'm like, wow, does people really have this much free time? And I, I guess they do, and uh, so. Um, you know, it's, it's not as bad, but it's, it's been something we've tried specifically to shake it a few times and, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's just, I I think now that particularly now is probably the best time where we might be able to shake it because if you look at everything we're publishing, uh, you know, even Witchblade is, is, is kind of taking a back seat. There's, you know, there's a lot of books that we're doing that have, uh, you know, science, hard science. I look at what we're doing now, and I call it like what I write with Think Tank Wildfire uh, and some other projects I'm doing. I call it hard science thrillers, and because yes. uh, to me, the hard science thrillers, I don't call them science fiction. They are science fiction by definition, but they're all set in the present, and I use science that's valid. You know, and and I've worked very hard on Wildfire. Wildfire well, was a little more fictional than I intended it to be. But, you know, a lot of these stories, I will stand by the authenticity of the fact that I believe that it could happen. And part of that is I have a network. You know, I, I have a master's in physics. You know, I know a lot of these people that work in, in various companies, uh, you know, Raytheon and, and things. And I talk to these scientists on a regular basis. Um, and a lot of these guys are working in this military industrial complex or they're working in genetics labs. And I, I'll, have, I'll buy these guys lunch every three or four months. And I sit them down and pick their brain. And my favorite thing to do is I ask, I said, what scares you? Can I tell you, a guy that's working on, you know, genetic alteration or working on trying to figure out a way to splice DNA with, you know, reptiles so that we can start healing better. I mean, you ask a guy like that what scares him, you're going to get a different answer than what scares people normally. Absolutely. You know, and uh, so I, I look at that and then I try to create story. I, I sort of mind those guys for what scares them. And then I look at that and try to create scenarios that can be better understood by, uh, you know, like the layman. I mean, I read a lot of there's a lot of scientists who do write fictional stuff, but uh, it's, it's very hard to get into. I mean, I, I, I there's a few that I've. I've read that even I'm like, man, I don't know who can read this. I mean, there's like, a, it's so, no, it's just because it's so technical,
0: you know. I understand. No, I, I've been given a couple recent graphic novels to go through, and it's a bit daunting right now. And I and I will do my best, but no, I, and I've and I've read other, like you said, graphic novels from hard scientists. Boy, you never feel more like a you know, a guy that went to a straight bachelor's degree four year college, then when you try and read some of this stuff and you really feel like, damn, would I blow my money out of my degree? I'm an idiot.
1: Well and I think <laughs> I think the problem with that kind of stuff is I'm kind of, with the stuff I'm doing for the most part, particularly the hard science stuff, I'm clandestinely trying to teach people something while entertaining them, you know? And if I can do that and pull it off, then that makes me very happy. And I've had a lot of people come up to me and talk to me about things and said, oh, I never knew anything about this, and oh, it's really interesting. And, you know, I like the comics, but I really like those those things you do in the back. In the back of every book I write, I include sort of a... uh, an appendix, which is, it includes like links of YouTube videos to look at that shows the science is real. I talk about the science and, and I, I, inclu- I, I, I heavily annotate a footnote. Um, but not just like just with a bunch of footnotes. I mean, I'll, I'll, actually write about why I think this or why I did this. And then I'll, I'll include books I read and, uh, things and, uh, and try to make it a little more accessible. I mean, especially on GMO. The reason why I did wildfire was because I didn't know anything about GMO. Someone asked me one day a few years ago, it's like, what do you think of all this GMO food? I'm like, I don't know. And uh, and, I, and I thought about that. And I'm like, huh, I should know. And so I started doing all this research. And then I met with this guy and uh, talked to him for a while. And then I got the idea of, uh, you know, what, if, you know, the, the, the whole idea of the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, you know. And uh, my thing is, if you're trying to do something good and something bad happens out of that, uh, those are, that's always good fodder for conflict and storylines, you know. So um, that's, that's sort of where Wildfire came from. Um, and uh, I think that's, that's for me, like, so it's a circle back around, I, I like doing these hard science thrillers. They're, they're what I would call my passion projects. You know, I'm doing sort of this Aphrodite Nine Ninth Generation stuff with Stephen Sedgwick, um, and that's sort of my that's sort of my love letter science fiction stuff that I'm doing for the Top Cow Universe because it has Aphrodite Nine and Cyber Force, and uh, it has some of the Artifact Bearers in it. But I didn't want to deal with uh, 15 years of Top Cow continuity. That's why I set that whole thing in the year t- in 2800 AD because then I could do whatever the hell I wanted. <laughs> So, um, I don't know if you, if you've read or know any of that, but that, that's the one sort of what I call universe book that I do write. Um, there were, I think 11 issues of Cyberforce, 11 issues of uh, Aphrodite nine and I just launched ninth generation and there's, there's been three issues so far of that. Um, and people, people seem to like it, you know, but that's, that's to me is sort of science fiction fantasy and that's kind of the stuff that I do with, with Cedric. Um, and, uh, yeah, I do tales of honor also, which is the, based on those novels, um, yeah, I look. I'm working on a lot of different projects, but the Tithe is is very topical because it comes out in uh, in April. You know, my Tales of Honor book, the new book I'm doing, um, it comes out in uh, that's my Free Comic Book Day book. I'm writing that. Linda Sedgwick is is painting it. Uh, that comes out for Free Comic Book Day, and then the first issue comes out in June. So both those series are the two new series I've got coming out. Tell me about Tales of Honor. Uh, Tales of Honor. I already did one volume with these uh, Korean painters. They're based on the Honorverse, which is a series of twenty uh, some novels that David Weber has written since 1991. Um, I was I know unaware David Weber, yeah. Yeah, so there's it's uh, it's about a it's way in the future. I, I um, I, I they use a different timeline, so I don't know technically what it would be for our timeline. But uh, the idea is basically sometime in in the next few hundred years, we start spreading out to the space, and initially, it's a source of great peace as everyone sort of self-segregates and everyone that normally on the earth would hate each other separate from each other from far, far away and set up these star kingdoms. And uh, as they continue to expand and grow economically, um, they get bigger and bigger. And suddenly their star kingdoms are starting to butt up against each other. So they're all having the same problems we have in modern America and in the world, really, um, in the future. And it's it's, it's great fun. It's, It's sort of this naval... Uh, Thing And and the people who are doing the uh, movie and TV show that they're developing on it, this company called Evergreen Studios who did Walk with Dinosaurs, the film, the BBC film, um, they hired me and brought me in and uh, wanted me to uh, develop and and do some original storylines because uh, the fan base for Honor Harrington, it was typically like 45 and up and it was uh, people that like military science fiction. So it was sort of a very specific audience. And they they wanted uh, a broader audience for it before they started doing the movie. Um, So I've been adapting it. I did one volume, which was hard. Uh, I I actually adapted one of the novels, which was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, actually. Um, And I'm not sure. And that's why for the second volume, I, I, I actually lobbied and they agreed to let me write an original story told between the novels. Because adapting someone else's work from novel to graphic novel is
0: is a hell of a lot harder than I thought it would be. (laughs) Sure, sure. So I don't want to do that again. I don't blame you. Well, no, and that seems like a lot of heavy lifting and the fun part of, of, you know, coming up with concepts and character and stuff is already done for you. So really you're just, you know, kind of adapting and, and, you know, making things uh, smaller to to fit you know a, a six or five issue you know mini series as opposed to a novel that can be as long as it needs to be I guess.
1: Yeah, the problem the problem with it would it, it would have made a better sense to make it like a twelve to sixteen to eighteen part storyline, Sure. there's so much exposition in some of those things and 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 uh, you know so it's just stuff they do in novels that you can't do in comics because uh, people uh-huh. lose their attention span too quickly, um, and you know it's like a lot of time in novels you'll do a setup for two, three hundred pages before anything really happens. You know, I'm just like, I can't even imagine.
0: You know, you need to hit someone over the head with the first issue of a comic or they're not going to buy the second one. It is more of a magazine experience, in the same way that Rucka is doing with Lazarus and Brubaker is doing with his crime comics. If you like this stuff, you're not just getting a cool fiction story; you're also getting other things that will satisfy that that like that brought you to the comic book in the first place.
1: Yeah, you know, and and uh, I, I'm a big reader, so I read a lot of stuff, and I, I tell people what sure. I'm reading too. And and the great thing is, I you know. And go. To, the other thing about comics that's just so awesome, more than I think any other entertainment medium, is comic people you can meet on a regular basis. You know, I mean, novelists will do book yes. signings, but they're actually kind of rare that novelists do book signings. You know, you don't meet people that write TV, you don't meet people who write films very often. But comics writers and artists have a relationship with their fan base. You know, you go to San Diego Comic Con. I mean, I do fifteen shows a year. You know, sure. and so. There are people who come to these shows and only want to buy the stuff directly from me, and uh, you know it's 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 just it's just a whole different sort of experience, and I like it. I actually, and that's I agree. I think that's one thing that people don't understand about comics is uh, if you really want to succeed as sort of a writer in comics, you've got to kind of be a a tremendous self marketer. You know, and uh, art sometimes can sell itself. You know what I mean? If it's good enough, people just put an image up. People like ooh. But uh, you got to you got to talk, you know, because the other thing I, I try to explain to writers at cons, too, is, uh, you know, an artist, if he's doing a sketch for someone can sit there and, and, and someone will be just riveted watching them draw a sketch for them for 15, 20 minutes. Well, if somebody wants me to sign their book, I can sign their book in about two seconds, you know, and I, I, would, yeah. I, I would see why, you know, sometimes writers, uh, they'll get a line of 15, 20 people and they'll be done in five minutes and they're like, oh, what am I doing now? and i'm like no you got to you got to make it an experience for the for the fan you know you got to talk to them and uh, and uh, so that's you know that that's for me is is why i try to write about stuff i like cuz if i didn't write about stuff i was I, I, I like and was passionate about i couldn't do that you know sure and uh, it's why i don't i don't really do licensed books i've always been opposed to doing licensed comics Tales of Honor is kind of an exception. They approached us and wanted to pay me to do it. That's not licensing. Licensing is me paying them for the privilege of publishing something for them. Um, Uh And uh, I know a lot of people do it and a lot of people like them and a lot of people make money on it. It's fine. But for me, I've always held this belief that you're creating sweat equity in someone else's franchise that ultimately you get no peripheral benefit from. And uh, so from a business standpoint, it just doesn't make sense to me. So I don't I don't know I know every other company does it so I can't really fault the uh, the business model I just I have a philosophical problem with it.
0: Well, but I but this is one of the big picture questions that I was interested in, and obviously based on what the books that you're writing and the books that you're talking about, and the choices you, you make not to publish and stuff, yeah, it's it's again, it's like what is Top Cow's identity today, and I think you are explaining it quite well that you know i'm glad that you are listening to your own taste because I do think there is that audience out there, and I do think that as interesting as heightened science fiction is that does take place centuries later and stuff and i'm a you know I'm a Star Trek fan, I like Star Wars and all that stuff too, but I really do think that the challenge is going you know two years from today right because because the world literally as as you well know is changing under our feet at a pace that I can't believe technology changes so much and governments, armies, business, no one really knows what they're doing and really don't have a choice but to hold tight as the things change underneath us happen and do the best we can to fix things. And that leads to interesting conflict in real life and interesting fictional conflict as well. And I just think that the right guys and women that, that get that Can can really tell some interesting fictional stories, so it's great that you're you're covering and trying to with with the stuff that interests you. Yeah, you know,
1: and the other thing is, I uh, you know, when I first started writing Think Tank, and and like I said, if you look from 2000 to about 2010, I don't think I wrote a single comic in there. Um, Okay, Okay. you know, there was ten year period where I did not write anything for comics. I worked in TV. I actually worked on two seasons of the Power Rangers. I did I did a number of other creative ventures. Um, and I was involved in the development of a lot of things, you know. But uh, I wasn't actively writing comics at all. Um, and uh, when I started doing Think Tank, sort of on a on a passion, personal whim, you know, I, it's one of those things where I finally I said, you know what, I'm, a, I'm effectively the publisher of this company, even though I don't call myself that. I can do whatever I want, and I'm not. That's stupid. So I, you know, when, when Rasan Ecodal did Echoes, I asked him if he'd be interested in working on a passion project with me, and. uh, he and I came up with the thing together and co-created it, and I uh, Think Tank came out. It was received really well, um, and I started looking at the numbers, and I'm like, huh, okay, and, uh, and then so I just, I just kept going. And, you know, now it's been three years and I, I look at a shelf and I've got 15 graphic novels of collected material I've written in three years, you know, and I'm like, it's kind of weird, you know, because uh, it's, it's uh, and I'm having the time of my life, actually. I, I really am enjoying writing and developing these characters. Um, one thing I always suggest to people on the executive side or the business side or the editorial side of comics is you have to try to write. Even if you suck at it, you got to try it because uh, – it's a whole other thing to you know stare that stare at a screen or to come up with an idea, and uh, and realize kind of what the people that uh, you're employing have to go through to develop these creative processes, you know. And uh, it's it's daunting sometimes, especially on uh, on the clock, you know. Because one thing I do to myself is I force myself with deadlines because. I hate holding other people up. It's, it's one of the things that just drives me nuts because uh, I, I, I've been held up by so many other people so many times in my career that uh, it's just one of the things I refuse to do. So um, it's like Rasan finished the tithe. I, I, I don't really need to start Think Tank with him for another two months, but I'm working on it now and trying to get him to plot because I don't want him to have to wait. For a couple of reasons, one, I don't want to lose the guy because Marvel goes steal him. <laughs>
0: you
1: know, <laughs> no, or, I understand. You know, yeah. but, uh, you know, also it's just unfair to people that have livelihoods and families and things in rent and things to pay. You know, these people, uh, I, I feel an obligation to them and keeping them uh, going. Um, it's uh, it's important to me. So,
0: in comics, go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, I, no, go ahead. In comics, no, finish your thought. No, I was going
1: to say, in comics is one of those things where it is a habitual entertainment. You know, if you don't put out material on a regular basis, uh, people forget about you very quickly. Understood. You
0: know, no. And, and yeah, no, I don't want, and I don't want you to not finish your thoughts. So if that isn't enough, I'll, I'll let you keep going.
1: No, I, that was just sort of the, the thought I was, I was trying to make was that, you know, you got to keep publishing. You know, I, there are a number of writers that have come in and written stuff for top cow, like four issue, five issue, six issue things. There's half a dozen, 20, 30, probably, uh, projects that top cow has published that people don't ever really think about i can name a lot of them you know and uh these are good projects and the writers uh you know hit or miss because they, they, they're either doing something else or they'll come in and write four or five books a year um i just think you know if you're gonna write comics you need to have two books on the stands a month at a minimum i think
0: if I you agree. if you that that to me is is the minimum otherwise you, you're forgotten you know I complete yeah well and I was going to ask because in this current environment you're not just competing obviously with DC and Marvel you're competing with just that notion of now so many creators are taking the image plunge are are doing their creator own books and I think it is more challenging beyond DC and Marvel to have projects that that might entice an artist or a writer to come over. Sometimes it is a license and they've always wanted to write Doc Savage or Battlestar Galactica or Buffy or whatever. So that makes sense. But what, you know, obviously that's not your taste. So how do you keep those guys, you know, Willing to come over to Top Gun.
1: Well, I think part of it is that we pay. You know, I mean, we, we do pay, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, uh, comparable rates that they would get for Marvel and DC when they come do the work. Um, and and there's a lot more creative freedom. I think if you talk to a lot of those guys, they, they get a lot more creative freedom working for us than they do working at other companies. And especially the artists that work with me, I'm, I'm tremendously collaborative by design. I mean, I, I think it, it'd be silly for a writer it, working in comics to not be incredibly collaborative with an artist. Because it's an artist driven medium, you know, um, and writers may be in vogue now in terms of, uh, you know, you look at the superstars and comics that have come up in the right. last 10 years. It's all writers, you know. Yes. They're, they're, I well, even
0: longer. Yeah. Even longer. I'd say 15 years. 15. OK. Yeah. So uh, I would say so. You know, the yeah.
1: superstars and comics for the last 10, 15 years are all writers. You know, it used to be the exact opposite. It was all artists. Um, yes. And uh, but, uh, you know, if you look at those superstar writers, they've all they're all working with really good artists. You know what I mean? Of course, sir. Yes, uh, you did. It's, it's a visual medium. And I, 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 I do something that a lot of the writers do not. And part of it is for me is just for time because i still got – I'm still doing all the financial work for Top Cow, all the legal work for Top Cow. I'm dealing with the payroll and all this stuff. We're sort of a small entity. you know. There's only five or six employees. Um, and so I end up doing a lot of other stuff. I write Marvel style. You know, I write plots, and uh, okay. in some cases, they're fairly loose. You know, I'll get on Skype, talk to Rasan or Stepan, and uh, write up some stuff, send it off to them. They'll send me some layouts. We'll talk about those. Then they'll go draw their book. Flash forward three, four weeks, five weeks, however, depending on the artist, I'll get the art. Then I'll sit down and script it. You know, I, like I said, I scripted Tithe this week, uh, I'm almost done with the second issue, but you know I've had the first two issues of that art for months I just didn't need to do it so I hadn't done it yet. So I'm sitting down okay. and scripting a bunch of the issues. So the dialogue for me comes after. And I know some writers just think that's stupid and don't want to do it. It's 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 writing it twice. I get to this argument with Josh Fialkov all the time. He he basically says you're 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 writing it twice. And I'm like, "Nah, not really." Because I'm doing it sort of real loose. Like when I do a plot cuz to me, when you're plotting, you're plotting all the time. I'm plotting when I'm out jogging on the track. I'm, I'm plotting when I'm taking my kids to school. I'm plotting sure. when I'm doing whatever, you know? And then sitting down and actually writing that plot up doesn't take very long. You know, I can do that in sometimes three hours for an issue, send it off to the artist, have a couple conversations. But then it takes me days to do the scripts, you know?
0: Do you find in running it that way, though, that. You know, because the art's already done, and when it comes time to dialogue, you feel that there needs to be a little more, you know, dialogue or, or exposition. Is that a regular problem, or does it not seem like a problem at all when you're writing?
1: Uh, both. I mean, it, it's sometimes okay. a problem, and sometimes it is not. I, I think part of the overwriting thing is something I've sort of realized about myself. I'm actually very proud of the tithe. I don't think it is overwritten. Um, okay. I do think a lot of the stuff I've done over the last several years has been a bit overwritten. And if I would go back and rewrite it, it would be streamlined. Um, you know, there's a certain amount of, of writing that I think, uh, you know, being concise and being able to convey the, uh, the message I think is, is, is a good thing. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I, am a big sort of proponent of not telling this what's in the panel. I get this all the time from, uh, submission writers where they'll send, you know, and I actually I, I just post something about this on Facebook where someone will send you a, something where it says, you know, let's just use the example of you've got two guys in a panel. One guy is handing another guy a book. OK, the wrong dialogue is, hey, thanks for handing me that book. You know, you know I mean, that's because you just explained what the person can right. see. So there's no Absolutely. point to the dialogue. The you know, a better version of that would be Here. Uh, you need to learn what they're thinking about. Or here, once you enlighten yourself to the other side of the, that argument, or, you know, or something you know, that enhances right. the scene, it doesn't just tell repeat the scene. Because I'm constantly amazed at how many writers do that. The other thing is uh, I, a lot of writers, and I went through this, and it's, it's interesting when you can self analyze and then sort of adjust. Um, but uh, people get so caught up in their high concept plot that their characters are kind of bland. You know? Understood. Yes. And uh I I to me those are things I look for. I, I you know, and I, I I always use the example lately of Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, that had rich, vibrant, fantastic characters in that film. And I challenge the majority of people that saw the movie to tell me what it was about. <laughs> what was the plot I of that stand. film? You know, and I I I, you, I've man. done that to several people. What's that movie about? <laughs> Oh, it's the blue guy and what was he doing? You know, they don't know. They're yes. like, "Oh, yes. it's the tree and, uh, and I am Groot," you know, and all this stuff. Yes. So <laughs> it's it's almost and I was talking to a guy from I mean, a Hollywood executive about this. He called he called it a, a word a post-plot uh, phase of storytelling. And I'm like, "What?" I said I hope that's yeah, not really explain. true, but uh so many films, you know. You know, I finally watched Birdman last night and uh have you seen it? What would you think? Yes, I have. I've got a lot of yeah. Go. I here's the thing. I, I I do this to myself sometimes. You know, I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it. And then people kept building it up to me, building it up to me, building. it. I kept and then won the Oscars and all this stuff. I'm like, fuck. Yes. I got to fucking finally watch this film. <laughs> and so I watched it and I was let down. You know, because I'm like, God. so was I. Go on. And yes. I just and part of it was if I'd have watched that film. Not knowing anything about it, and oh, it's a Michael Keaton film. I haven't seen him in anything lately. Oh, hey, Ed Norton's in this too. And I'd be like, "That's interesting. That's kind of cool, you know." But uh, because everyone told me how fantastic and great the film was, when I, when I finally watched it, I'm like, "That's it." You know, I mean, that was kind of my reaction to it. Is that that's it. You know, and uh, I, I I don't know. I, maybe uh, maybe that's criminal, but I I that happens no, I... to me a lot. Where I, I can't watch movies in theaters anymore unless I'm going with my kids because people drive me fucking nuts. The, well, that's true. The crazy yeah, narcissism and rudeness of people with their phones and their are talking yes. and all the just insanity just drives me nuts because I'm kind of hyper vigilant and so I can't. It just it angers me and I yell at people in theaters. So I I, I, I don't go to movies anymore <laughs> in the theaters very rarely. You know, I got a nice big TV screen at home, and uh, so I watch movies at home. And sometimes you know you got to wait for that for the most
0: part. I understand. and I, Well, I saw it in an art house movie theater, and I saw it when it came out. And my feeling was, first of all, and it speaks to what we were just talking about, about being having too much dialogue. I feel like they should have edited about 20 minutes out of that movie, and it would have made a great, tight, one-hour story. And I also think that the performances were great, but I had a problem. And this is – because I always uh, – maybe this is my own bias being a comic book fan – but I felt like the director was saying – and I don't think this spoils the movie to say this because he also co-wrote the movie um, – that, that Michael Keaton had to make a choice of either being a Batman sort of superhero movie franchise actor or a true Broadway actor and, and really embrace your roots and that it was that Birdman persona saying, you don't need this crap. You're a god. Go back to the multi-million dollar things. And that was a 1999 problem. Right. I don't think that's a current day problem. I think Robert Downey and Christian Bale and lots of other really good actors are able to have their cake and eat it too and make the big budget. Johnny Depp is your classic example. He could be Jack Sparrow in those insipid pirate movies that I hate, but he can also take that money and then you know do an indie movie six months later and be and satisfy that part of his life. So I didn't buy the conflict that Keaton was suffering through. And I also felt it was kind of an FU and especially one part of the movie where things get really ramped up from a visual uh, spectacular standpoint. And if anyone hadn't seen the movie, I'll leave it at that. I think you might know what I'm talking about. Uh, that happens in his mind. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I'm like, Oh, and, and, and to be honest, I was excited because something was happening on screen as opposed to the circular conversations that were covering the same ground. Right. uh, Again, those are my – well, I appreciate you (laughs) pointing it out because now you got my five minutes of why I dislike Birdman. And I just really did feel like – like I said, that it's like, hey, man, you're manipulating this as you should. You're the filmmaker, but I'm not buying your scenario. And just because you put in a scene that has a lot more going on uh, that might be considered stereotypical things you might find in a a superhero movie – it's because you've been boring me to death with the same conversation over and over again for the last, you know, twenty or thirty minutes during Act Two. Right. But that's just me. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm, <laughs> I'm worried about uh, Whiplash because uh, that's another one I haven't seen yet, and I know I want to it see it as well. Just yeah, came out on DVD or and or digital, and I'm about to download sure. it and watch it on my iTunes. And I'm I'm concerned <laughs> I'm not going to like that much either. I hope I do because I like uh, J.K. Uh, Simmons or whatever his name is. Oh yeah.
0: Oh, man, ever since Oz. Absolutely, man. No, I'm a huge fan as well. And then, again, multi-talented because just as great as Juno's dad, just as great as Jonah Jameson, and yeah. you name it, man. No, no, I, I'm am a I'm a big fan as well. Well, you seem to make the challenge of making interesting characters along with these very intricate plots as well, so... I look forward to checking out the tithe and, and seeing what you do with uh, with this subject and those characters. I think the key for that is to, is to
1: try to find the heart of those characters and, and, and what do they need and what do they want and what's the conflict and where where do they start. I always tell people take a snapshot of where your character is at the beginning, take a snapshot of where your character is at the end, figure that out and figure out how they get there.
0: Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds classic. Did you ever like you know read McKee and story and some of these other things in terms of how to write uh, fiction? No, I, uh, no, no, not really. I mean, I, I've sort of, have learned by
1: proxy. Um, I, i never studied, I actually was horrible at English in school. That's why I went into science and, uh, you know, for me, that's why I'm glad I have really good editors. Because uh, if if I, my stuff went out with my English and punctuation and grammar, it would it would not be good. <laughs> <laughs> who are your editors? Uh, that's Zogonia and Ryan, Katie, both uh, work for me at topcow and it's, yep. it's, it's it's interesting for them because I, I'm their boss and the writer they're editing. So it's it's sort of uh, I think it's a hard. I, I put them sometimes in a hard situation. Um, I've gotten much better about it and much less precious about my stuff. You know, I think when I first started writing, I was very precious about what I wanted to do, and I didn't want people to change things, and I became very frustrated when, when you know, with notes from people, and I was never very good at, at taking notes from people, but I have sort of have learned how to deal with that in a better way. I mean, Tales of Honor has kind of taught me that, because it's a property I don't own and control, um, and someone else is paying the bills, and someone else is telling me what they want and what they want changed, and... uh it's, it's interesting when you're working with people, and I'm not saying for Tales of Honor because I think the project came out great, but it, it's just – sometimes I, I talk to writers who change things that they don't want to change. you know, And uh, that's, that's a frustrating thing if, if you're changing, and changing something in a direction and you're forced to do something and, and you don't like it and you don't like the changes.
0: Uh, that happens to Hollywood screenwriters. Uh, it happens to people who write for Marvel and DC all the time. Again, I, it it kind of explains your your philosophy of what you guys are putting out there now at, at Top Cow, and I and I think that's great. I'm interested. You know, I, I I'd love to have you come back on because you have this amazing perspective of, like you say, being there from the beginning at Image. Your time at Awesome and stuff, working with Rob, working with the Lobe and all these guys. The only thing I do want to say is, so how do you feel in terms of where the comic market is now?
1: Um, well, if you'd, my answer would have been slightly. I, I, if you'd asked me a year and a half ago, I would have said cautiously optimistic. You ask me today, I'll tell you I'm very optimistic. I, I, the sales in the books I've been writing, Postal with Brian Hill and some of these books, the sales are great. I mean, the sales have been going up. Uh, every new series I've done, the sales have gone slightly up. You know, I, I sort of use the analogy that I may not be throwing home runs like Marvel and DC on some of these projects are, but I'm marching up the field a yard or two at a time, and the difference is noticeable. <laughs> And, you know, the one thing for me as an executive at the company is I take a salary. So I'm not taking a page rate. So when I do books that increase in sales, those books just become more profitable, you know. And uh, so it's it's sort of a win-win for the company. And I write, you know, I mean, it was an interesting sort of when Mark and I started writing and doing as much work as we do, since we don't take page rates and we just take salaries that we get to the company, uh, uh-huh. we, we instantly became much more profitable. And uh, it was kind of a weird thing to, to realize, you know, and – uh um, so, you know, and I think the stuff we're developing is good. I, I see a lot of independent companies still doing superheroes and, and doing sort of, to me, what I call second third rate versions of what Marvel and DC do. I, I yes. think they're always going to lose in comparison. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's why, you know, if you look at what I do, I'm doing science fiction. I'm doing uh, current storytelling. I'm not really interested in period stuff. I'm not going to do cowboy westerns. I'm not going to do a, a, a Viking epic. I mean, some of that stuff can sell, but... Uh, I'm doing stuff that, to me, is, is very contemporary and uh, has the, at least the possibility of being passed along to a film on a television series and monetized in other avenues. Um, and, uh, you know, and then there's, like, like I said, like the book like Ninth Generation and Aphrodite Nine that I do that uh, is so out there and so continuity-driven that it's not for film and TV at all. It's just for those hardcore fans that, that dig it. Um, but, uh, no, I'm very optimistic. I mean, the digital sales are up. Uh, the print sales are up. Uh, our trade paperback sales are up, you know, I mean, uh, we've seen double digit sales increases over the last two years. And, uh, so, uh, you know, I mean, from that level, you know, and we don't have anything on the air. I mean, we have, uh, you know, we had wanted on the air 2009, right? Uh, we had the two darkness video games. The last one came out in 2012. So we've had nothing of a media event to sort of drive sales and we've managed to increase our sales regardless. So um, I think you know, and for years, like I said, for a long period of time, especially around when Wanted came out, up until I I started writing again, I was spending the majority of my time uh, trying to push Hollywood stuff. You know, I was uh, meeting, taking hundreds of meetings, uh, meeting with executives, general meetings, and just wasting time. In hindsight, it's just a giant waste of time to me. But uh, you know, I I, my manager to always tries to get me to do these general meetings, and I just won't do them because general meetings to me are just just a waste of time you know when i've developed a concept we'll take it out we'll send it to, we'll go pitch it and someone will either buy it or they won't and then if they don't buy it we'll either keep publishing this comic or we won't and then we'll move on to something else you know it's, it's sort of real simple to me and i'm uh, i'm pretty happy with the way things are going so uh yeah you know and, and if we get some sort of uh media event film tv or, or whatever that will spurn sales then uh that's
0: even that's even that much better that's excellent, man, and I've heard you talk like that in in these other interviews and and written interviews as well. And it's the kind of thing that, just as a layman, just as a reader and an observer, since starting this podcast ten years ago, that I would suggest to some independent creators that we're staying with a concept a little bit too long. And it's like, hey, man, you got to move on to the next thing. I, I think this this you know this. Uh, book that you're very passionate about, you know, you, you put out 30 issues of it. If the audience isn't responding, hey, you got three trades. You got six trades. Move on. And it seems like you are in that mode of let's put it out there. Let's get a trade. This is good. If sales, you know, dictate it, great. We'll keep going. If not, Fine, we cut bait, and uh, we've got the one trade. It's there. It, it's potentially a movie or TV property down the line, but we move on to something new. And I think that's that's the way you survive and stay viable. So yeah, that's great.
1: And the tail effect is 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 uh, is, is the one counter argument to that is the tail effect. Please, is because uh, I, I agree with everything you just said, but the one thing about publishing specifically is that uh, you have to put out multiple volumes of something if you want to sell and increase sales. And I've noticed that with Think Tank and some other books is uh, whenever you put out a new issue, either digitally or, or in print or a new volume, it increases sales of the previous ones because the retailers either need to restock it or whatever it is. So there is a tail effect. And if you can watch your inventories and properly monetize that, uh, then you can actually do fairly well in continuing series. But it's like for me, I'm with Think Tank. If you look at Think Tank, I did 12 issues, which are 13 issues, which I converted into three volumes of a graphic novels. Uh, and then I took a year off, and I did some other stuff. And now I'm doing a new Think Tank volume. And, uh, yep. you know, think tank's been set up, it was set up as a film and now it's been set up as a TV series. It hasn't been announced yet. So I can't really talk too much about that, but, uh, oh, part of that's my great, reasoning for relaunching it is, is I want to rejuvenate interest because of the possibility of a TV show. So there's that's terrific. All kinds of crazy stuff going on.
0: Let me ask you about, um, the Kickstarter cyber force crowdfunding and everything. How, how do you look back at that? Did it work or and what, what, what lessons did you take from that experience?
1: Well, it was, uh, I think it was three years ago, and we haven't done another one. So, I mean, okay. I, I, I will <laughs> let that sort of speak for itself. Um, and, uh, the, you know, I, I love crowdfunding. I think the idea of it is great. Um, the problem with it is, is it sort of uh, pisses off the retail base. Um, and I, th- okay. I think you, okay. you need a, a reason to do it. I mean, the thing is with a crowdfunding, if you don't have either a reason for it or some sort of a message to send or give, Uh, then I think it's a bad idea if it's, particularly for corporations to go on there and say, Hey, give me money to, you know, mitigate my risk, which is the way a lot of people perceive it. Um, that, uh, just pisses the people off. Um, I know there are independent creators that do it and do it regularly. And I watch these things. I'm an avid watcher of Kickstarter, Indiegogo and all these various campaigns, and, uh, you know, we, we've, we've thought about doing some other ones and we've certainly had the conversation and we're continuing to have some conversations about it. So don't be surprised if we announce one over the summer. But I mean, the, the, the point of it is, is we're not just going to do one just to do one, you know, for, for sure. we have uh, revenue streams that are sufficient to do what we do. Um, are there people that only buy these things through Kickstarter? Yeah, I think there are. And so I think there is a certain audience that you can reach. That uh, you may not reach through traditional uh, avenues. So, and I think Jimmy Palmiotti has done a good job of sort of servicing some Absolutely. of that. Um, I, I sort of look at him as the the prototype. Cryptozoic does a good job with their board games, um, and uh, you know John nee is a, is a veteran of the old Image Wildstorm and jo- Jim Jim Lee stuff. DC exec for a while, and uh, talking to him about doing some things. I, I, the key to it is to have something that people can support. You know, I I, you know, this is my dream. I want to do this. Please help me. I can't do it otherwise. That's that's a good message once for an independent creator. Um, You know, I I think the the best monetization method I've seen from crowdfunding is when people will do uh, like web comics where they give it away for free for a year or two or three. And then they'll do a hardcover collected edition or something to put it in print finally, because they've built a fan base. Yes. Um, and if you have an established fan base, and you can figure out a reason to do it, and that is a good one. Hey, I've been giving you this stuff for free for five years. Uh, if you want to buy a nice hardcover, you can help me
0: put this book in print, and uh, that would be great. Um, I appreciate that. As someone also that is doing Patreon, uh, as opposed to Kickstarter. Well, you know, you know, you, you know,
1: you know. Here's, a, here's a, Adam Carolla does this. Uh, Dan Carlin does it with Hardcore yes. History. Both those guys, I I buy their books. I've donated money to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History because I listen to them religiously, and uh, they give me all this free entertainment. And then they will occasionally ask me to chip in for this or that or the other thing. And uh, you know, I pre-ordered uh, Adam Kroll's new movie Road Hard. I was part of his uh cool. you know, fund fund anything or whatever it was campaign because I like him and I think he's funny. Um, and I went to a couple of his uh, stand-up podcast things, you know. And so I okay. mean, there's and this is another thing, you know. And I, I I don't know if you need to go too, but the other thing. No, no, the, I don't actually. The so free <laughs> thing is a powerful incentive, and that's what Cyberforce the Kickstarter was wrapped up in. The original idea of the Cyberforce Kickstarter was. We wanted to be able to upload and address the pirate community. We wanted to go to all the torrents and, be, and, and sort of embrace them and say, we're giving you this A-plus content, well-drawn, well-written, high-end comics. We're going to give you the pristine files, and we want you to help us disseminate them. That was sort of what the idea of it was. What we discovered is they didn't want to talk to us. They were all paranoid as fuck. And uh, <laughs> it, was, it was amazing because, uh, you know... And because I, I, I've had this sort of mixed thing on piracy, you know, because as a publisher, as a content you know, seller, uh, sure. one side of my thing is, well, why are these people ripping it off? But then on the other hand, and this happened to me last year at the San Jose Comic Con where this guy came up to me at the booth and just said, oh, I want this, 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 Buys his hardcover. It's like $150 worth of stuff. And I'm like, awesome, man. And, uh, and, and I'm like, what, you know, I, I and he, he bought like everything. So I'm like, how did you, you know, and then he's like, oh, I've been reading your stuff for a while. And I'm like, then why are you buying it again? He's like, oh, I never bought it. And I'm like, what? He's like, oh, you know, I was on this, uh, VPN torrent. I'm like, I I'm immediately realized, I'm like, fucking a, this guy pirated my shit for the last several years, was reading all of it. And now he just dropped 150 bucks in my hand. And, uh. So that sort of gave me pause because then it comes about like the idea of uh, bands where, you know, they basically give the music away for free and they make money touring. Sure. You know, so, you know, and that, that's, uh, that was the idea of Cyberforce was we wanted to give it away for free and we did. We gave away five issues and we gave the hardcover only to the Kickstarter people and we gave five exclusive variants that were only available to Kickstarter people. Mark and I had a bunch of lunches with people. I, I, did like 10 different Skype hour phone calls of people that wanted to talk to me about story. And no we did a bunch of stuff and it was, it was a, it was a fascinating, uh, ex- exercise and we thought about doing it again, but then it was just such the fulfillment on it was such a pain in the ass. And then, uh, you know, what had happened to us is when we, it was before Kickstarter did their own thing where they took care of the postage calculations. And, uh, so we actually got fucked because, uh, we were, while we were waiting for the hardcover cause the thing is we did the kickstarter before the first issue came out so we told people that the hardcover wouldn't be out for like a year year and a half you know and so when the year year and a half came out the postage costs were dramatically higher and uh and i you know it's just those little business things that you don't necessarily calculate and now you know they they handle that because kickstarter adds it in at the end and they they make them pay for it and it's 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 much and i think it's because so many people got kind of fucked you know yeah i remember
0: no absolutely
1: yeah so but uh, you know, we we're, were we were different. We just ate it. I mean, that, that was that was
0: it was a lot. It was several thousand dollars, and we just ate it. I heard those kinds of horror stories from Palmiotti and Paul Jenkins and and several others as well. So no, I, I can appreciate it. Um, and that leads to another question because uh, I just spoke to somebody from Scribd a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and they are doing. Are you are you guys doing stuff with Scribd or not? Yes. Because there's a there's a legal way that people are paying that renting subscription, the Netflix model, and I think that's terrific for a lot of publishers, where people do really want to sample what sounds like a good idea and everything. So how can you can you tell me a little bit about like how much of the uh, what what's available on Scribd? Um, I, I I don't think we limited it. I think that... is it I was going to say is it back catalog stuff
1: or yeah. is it current stuff too? No, I think it's everything. I, I don't know. Uh, wow, we, I, it might it could potentially be everything that's available on comicsology. Um, okay, I, I I think we didn't limit it. Um, you know, I I you know, for me, particularly with backlist, you know, I am interested in getting as many people to read it for as many different reasons as possible. It's one of the reasons why I sure. do the the talent hunt. We do is sort of uh, a two hander. You know, on one hand, uh, it, it's my way of of getting some people into the industry uh it's also allows us to to get access to new artists and new talent for uh mm-hmm. inexpensive rates because they're new um sure but sure. At, the, at the same time we sell shit tons of digital downloads during <laughs> the uh the reference part of uh, when people because people come in and they're like oh I, you know i, I want to you know turn, i want to uh, participate and and i want to write a story about these characters and then they're like oh shit I can go read, and then we, you know, what we do is we sort of time it. You know, you may have noticed we did a Witchblade and a Darkness sale on Comixology, and they did very, very well for us. Those were timed specifically as part of the what the talent hunt, because I knew there were a lot of people that were writing these stories, and they they could inexpensively go get all those books, um, and uh, we sold a lot of them and uh that's cool, and I, I think that's the kind of thing is people when they actually sit down and read some of these things they're not for the most part what they thought they were you know if if they were just some marvel or d c zombie and they always thought Top cow was just you know half naked chicks shooting each other, and then they actually sit down and read these things, they realize, oh shit there's a whole story here, mythology and uh you know the the you know, I just I don't get the titillation. You know, the companies that are doing these sort of titillation books, I'm like, there's free porn online. What do you need that for? But it's, just, it's <laughs> that's just me, you know?
0: <laughs> I don't disagree. I, I, and I, and the other thing I wanted to ask real quick is about Corolla, because I remember he's been at the Top Cow booth a few times at San Diego and did interviews. And I remember he did a Sylvester interview yeah. in particular. And um, I got to ask, because years before he had the podcast, he was ranting about how much he hates... Comic book movies. I don't get it. And it makes no sense to me because I know he loves action movies. Right. So I don't really understand. Did, like, were you able to turn, like, first of all, how did it, like, how did you associate with him to get to the booth? And also, given what you do, I think it would be the kind of stuff that he might find interesting. Have you, like, been able to convince him to maybe rethink you know that comic books don't suck because, like I said, he just is a little too passionate. And I'm like, oh, look who's at Comic Con—the guy that, who again, I think is really funny. But I'm like, man, he's like spends a lot of time shitting on comic books, and look where he is.
1: Yeah, he he now uh, he shits on comic books, and uh, he he, uh, he continues to bag on them. I mean, he's he's famously, you know, if you listen to his podcast, he's famously the guy. He just doesn't read, so. You know, That's true. You know, so, I mean, for that, it, it, it's kind of, I think it's one of those things where it's kind of his shtick now, you know, and it's hard. Okay. Once people have a shtick, it's, it's hard to change. So, uh, I, I, I think he's funny. I, I, his, I think he's funny too. His man. two, his two things uh, why do people do what they do? If it doesn't make you money or it doesn't make you happy, then why do you do it? I, I, when he said that uh, several years ago, that kind of changed my life because i started thinking about stuff i'm like why do i do this that and the other thing if it's not making me money or it's not making me happy then why am i doing it and yeah. uh so i i just you know he, get, he gets a bad rap i think i i i, I enjoy his podcasts and I, i'm a big old school dennis miller fan you know ever since his uh white washington album or whatever that was his tour
0: oh yeah the off yeah off, the off, off white yeah, album yeah. I love that. No.
1: They're one of my favorites. And uh, so he's got that new po cast he's doing with Adam. And so that's actually my new favorite podcast is
0: Dennis and Adam together. Oh, wow. You know, I, I might have to listen to that. I have to admit, and I, and I, this will show my my politics and stuff, that post, post 9-11, where Miller himself admits he kind of did have a bit of a change. Or at least got a little more uh, vocal about his con- the conservative side to his libertarianism. Right. Uh, but... Yeah, I don't. You know him on Fox. I got to be honest, he bugs me and, and it disappoints me because he used to be a little more equal opportunity jabber during the '90s on his show. I mean, he'd find fault with uh, liberal, like uh, like a Mike Farrell. Like he'd be on politically incorrect with Mike Farrell and go, "Yeah, man. You know, I got to be honest. There's some guys that do deserve capital punishment no matter what." And I agreed with him there, and also was able to like correct Charlton Heston when he was talking about gun control and referred to them as like the Brady's. And in, in a kind of, like, condescending way. And he's like, hey, man, Jim Brady, like, really, that's not fair. Come on. Like, Jim Brady, you, you can't be mad at him. Right. And, you know, and, and the people that represent his cause and everything. So I was always impressed that there was at least equal opportunity on his part. And I think Corolla, for the most part, manages to to stay, despite leaning conservative, like, pretty fairly minded as well. But Miller, I don't know, he kind of lost me. You know, I never watched him on Fox. I've actually never
1: watched Fox News. You know, people ask me about Fox News all the time, and I'm like, uh, you know, I don't really get into that because uh, I I don't watch TV news. I I get my news from the the BBC website in the last 10 years, and uh, I I Google News. And, uh, you know, so I, I actually try to figure things out for myself. I read The Economist every week, you know, so... I, I get go. my news from other sources. Um and so I, I, I miss most of that. My, my Dennis Miller, I knew from him from the Off White album, from that Washington stand up sure. he did, and I just when he was talking about the quintessential thespian and stuff like that, I'm like, Oh, this is like smart, you know? <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> and I did I that. So yeah, yeah, man. I saw him I saw him in college uh, on tour and and yeah, no, the the, the HBO nineties show, I just that was like appointment television. Had to see that every every Friday night and everything. It was one of the best shows HBO ever did. Yeah. I just thought it was smart and funny and just fair. I really always thought ultimately, like when he dealt with like so- social issues, he just was fair. Right. But anyway, that's okay. But no, you're you are obviously a well read guy, and I think that's why it's uh, great that you are putting your interests in your books. And I'm glad you're doing. It, and I'm glad that you've you found an audience and that it's uh, become a profitable venture for Top Cow and yourself and Mark. And the others over there, so that's that's great. And and truly, uh, good luck with the tithe comes out on April fifteenth. That's tax day. Yes, sir. And uh, and then uh, you've got the uh, uh, tales of honor for uh, free comic book day as well in April. Yes. And and looking forward to uh, the next think tank in um, in uh, the like uh, late summer, early fall. Yeah, we'll have, we'll have more information on that, and and hopefully a TV announcement will actually be next week. So, um, oh, I'm wow. waiting, for, waiting for that. So should be some good stuff. Regardless, no, I'd, I'd love to talk to you more down the road. So I'll, I'll see you at San Diego. Are you going to be in Chicago at C2E2? I will not, but I will be because I'm going to the Middle East Comic Con, which I think is the same weekend, nice. so I'll be in Dubai. So, But, uh, yeah, I will be at San Diego, so definitely come by the booth. I absolutely will, Matt, and uh, I, will, uh, I appreciate your time tonight and uh, look forward to future conversations with you. Awesome. Thanks, John. Have a good night, man. And to wrap things up, uh, it's a pleasure to welcome Tom King to Word Balloon. Tom was on one of our uh, New York Comic Con Uh, convention floor conversations. Uh, He and Tom Fowler worked together on Tom's novel, Once a Crowded Sky, and uh, Tom did the illustrations for that. Fowler, uh, King wrote the novel, and it's just been a long time coming, and and I've meant to have him on sooner, but as I say, he is a frequent guest on Comic Geek Speak. Congratulations on the 10th anniversary of Comic Geek Speak. Uh, They just hit that mark last week. Um, And uh, Tom is a regular guest, and I always feel like we share an audience, so sometimes I'm hesitant to have Tom on because he'll come on for a couple episodes and uh, you know I'm like all right you know he's he's got his he's got his platform over there so it was nice to find time where uh, Tom wasn't on with the geeks but uh could uh, make time to uh, speak with me we get a bit of his back history as an intern at DC and Marvel back in the day and uh just his thoughts on uh where the DC is today so uh, interesting conversation with Tom King to wrap things up on today's Word Balloon Tom King welcome back to Word Balloon good to talk to you man
2: dude this is one of a supreme honor i know this is on my nerd bucket list to be on this show i cannot thank you enough for having Were you
0: that. you weren't you on uh when we did the floor conversation with fowler i
2: i, I i've been on as as but this is my first sort of interview like, yeah where i feel like you know like this is like my wtf my fresh air this is i feel very like this is no you don't understand this
0: yeah, I appreciate it, man. Thank this you. It's, it's, I'm embarrassed. I appreciate
2: This that. is one of the podcasts, and you in particular, that's, I can honestly say changed my life in some small, bizarre way. Oh, that's very nice. Well, well, you you were the third comic book podcast and probably like the fourth actual podcast I listened to, which was wow. like 10. Yeah, so I started with Around Comics, which I still worship. As a Hall of Fame comic podcast for me, and it's so sad that, that I can't Good be guys. around the box. Oh my god, I meet them, and it's it's meetings, just like meeting you. It's like meeting celebrities to me. I don't know, no, but like I, I, I spend nice. more time with them than I ever spent with George Clooney. Like I would brush my teeth to Tom Caters every <laughs> single night. <laughs> 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 like that was like how it's like, I was like, oh, I don't want to brush my. Oh, so t- Did you listen to
0: Tom versus the Flesh and Tom versus Aquaman? The whole thing.
2: Oh man, no. Tom Caters is the is the lost genius He's podcaster, stars. right? He's very funny. Oh, man, wherever you... Yeah, uh, he's, the, he's the one I haven't met. He's I,
0: doing fine. He's, um, yeah, he just, you know, I mean, he's, he's just busy doing his thing. And to be honest, he's... I think he's... I, I don't know for sure, but I believe he's working on, you know, like his comedy and, you know, kind of trying to get that stuff going. So, no, I... I Tom's a good man. I, he just doesn't come to this, the conventions like he used
2: to. Oh, I've, yeah. I've, I've sat, I sat across from Sal at C2E2 once, and I was afraid to go up and talk to him. And I finally no did. No way. And I'm like, oh, I just want to introduce myself. I'm talking. And, uh, and and I met Neesman once, drunkenly in a – again, at C2E2. We sh- I, I, was, I shared a house, house. with Neesman, and Wood, all the 11 o'clock guys were there, and uh, Chris Campbell from uh, um, the Taylor Network. And uh, and again, Niesman he was like holding court with a like flask of scotch in his hand, and I was like, oh, "I'm too tired." Do you know how many hours I spent listening to? Um, yeah, around comics was my jam, man. I used to listen to that, and then uh, and That's then I did the iFanboy. Fanboy, and I got to be on that once, so sure. I was super excited. And then you were you Excellent. were the third, and I'm in good company, and I'll uh, take it. yeah. And I remember like you would cross over, like you and would go on around co- comics every once in a while. And, yeah, both shows actually. Even I Fanboy a couple of times. Yeah, and it was like when like. Leno sat down on Letterman. I was like, what is going on? <laughs> My mind is blown. Get, that's hilarious. Yeah, dude, I mean, that's, I was very excited. That's
0: very fun. No, we, you know, um, years ago, because you can throw in uh, Norton and the Cranks uh, show, The Crankcast, we did that 24 hour podcast where we all went to Dark Tower, yes. the, the store that um, I, around comics used to broadcast from. Did you ever hear that? Have you heard the twenty-four hour comic podcast? I listened to pieces of it, not the whole. Thing. Okay,
2: yes, but yeah, but well, that had an effect on me because that was the first time I did Crank and Mike, and then Crank through him was how I knew about Tim Seely, who is now my writing partner on Tracy. It so it's like a very you know, small little podcast world that's still affecting me.
0: It, it's all true, and I and I absolutely I was going to get to the Seely connection because Seely even did an hour interviewing I forget which horror film director. <laughs> that sounds like. Which a honestly, character. and and I've been on Seely's case ever since. Of. Jesus, you've got to do a horror podcast because he does. He really does know everybody and has that encyclopedic uh, knowledge of the horror genre. And you know, and he, he knows he he's friends with all the trauma guys. And you know, he's oh, yeah, meet Kevin Grievo. I'm like, holy cow! No, I'm. Uh, it was a, it, that was really fun. Uh, that 24 hour podcast. And now it 's like when we had good people on it, I even like I, I emailed Bendis, and I 'm like, "Hey, what are you doing at three in the morning he's like "I'll be up <laughs> <laughs> and it was me and the around commerce guys talking to Bendis for an hour, and that was fun.
2: Oh man, dude that yeah, that takes me back, yeah, so I should
0: see if that's still on iTunes or not i 'm not sure, and i 'll ask crank because if if anyone still has the
2: the files, crank does well, it was the Bendis tapes that had the profound effect on my life. Because I remember when I was I had left CIA and sort of deciding what to do next with my life, and I remember listening to Bendis tapes and Bendis being like, talking about comics. And I remember you asked him some question. He's like, oh, about why he works in comics. He's like, oh, because life's too short to wear a tie. And I was like, fucking write it. Oh, excuse my language, but no, you please. You're on War Balloon, man. What are you talking about? Yeah, I used to be a CIA. I cuss a lot. Yeah, I was like, fucking write. Life is too short to wear a tie. I was like, I'm gonna give this a try. And here I am so, now. I make a living out of it. So thank man. you, thank you. So John just,
0: Oh my play! Well, so just like in the prisoner, the Patrick McGowan spy show, you're, you're like slamming your fist on the on the te- desk and everything, breaking the guy's teacups, right? Slapping down the resignation letter. Right. I was like, John,
2: F. Word Balloon says it's possible,
0: exactly. All right, number six. Taking off you this tie.
2: Go. I'm gonna write some funny books. I'll see it six Although- years.
0: Although for Grayson it's thirty seven, which I like that he was aged thirty seven. So
2: yeah, I don't know what that was. Sealy did that. I don't know why he didn't make it thirty six. He says it's like the next issue. I don't get it. I've talked to him about that.
0: Oh, why? Because I was wondering if or was he thirty six or thirty seven? I forget. It was. Is that the issue of Detective that Robin
2: debuts? Thirty six is the issue he debuts, and he no, or, or no, thirty eight. It's what's one off. Do you thirty six or thirty? Oh, he was, but he is one off. Yeah, That's he's hilarious. one off, and he made it. Up. <laughs> <laughs> He had a theory about it. He had like a complicated sort of postmodern theory on it. I was like, okay, I guess you're right. It probably boiled down to Agent Thirty Seven sounds the most badass. I think is probably what it was. <laughs> I'm, I'm half like because this is your
0: first interview, and I mean, I do want to get your full origin. And I'm glad you mentioned the CIA because I was curious anyway. But we'll get back to it. Uh, but I know you've you've gone over your your origin before on other on other podcasts. Yeah. but you know, so yeah, inter, intern at Marvel. Intern of Marvel,
2: oh, in, and
0: and I want to say DC as well. But you tell me. Yeah,
2: started at DC uh, Vertigo. Uh, I was Cliff Chang's in, intern, so that's how old I am.
0: <laughs> that's awesome, and I love Cliff absolutely. Yeah,
2: he was still an assistant editor. I was just I was at this DC summit, and Shelley Bond was there, who's now head a Vertigo. And I was saying like, big fan kind of Shelley's, absolutely. Yeah, and she was there, and I think you know she was like. You know, to mm-hmm. uh, I would like kind of go in her office, kind of quietly, and photocopy things for her. She's like, "Yeah, yeah, I'd like to say I remembered you, but <laughs> I was like, no, no uh, it's cool.' I was the fifteenth photocopy boy that walked through your office. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And Axel Alonso was there at that time. Love uh, Axel. Uh, Good.
0: Man. Yeah, it was. Re- it was. It was a perfect. Was, Will, was was Will Dennis there yet? I don't think so, or at least I didn't. I know actually, yeah, because obviously I know Will took over a lot of Axel's books. So
2: yeah, he may have been an assistant. My one great memory of Axel this can't possibly be a secret was him on the phone to Garth Ennis yelling about the end of preacher about what he say? It was because I, the the controversy was Alan Moore wanted swamp thing to meet Jesus at the end of that. And that's why he left. Yes.
0: Yes. I remember that. And that's how old I am. I was reading back then. Go on.
2: (laughs) And he was talking and I I, I don't want to spoil the end of preacher, but there is a confrontation of divinity at the end of the book. Yeah, yeah. And they were talking about sort of that confrontation and how to avoid this Alan Moore meeting Jesus on the page problem. And I remember like being he like him, like being like heatedly on the phone, being like, look, we can't do it. You don't know what happened with Moore and Jesus. I was like, this is the craziest conversation anyone's ever had. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> no, you know, it's, it is. It's stuff like that. And yeah, well, you know, let's, we could bounce all over the place because, um, yeah, well, we'll come back to it maybe. But yeah, the perspective of, the way things were then and the way things are now because i am interested too in uh what you experienced at the at the talent summit you were at the dc summit oh yeah crazy oh so yeah you know but no let's we'll stick to this we'll stick to the past right now oh all right yeah look. because we want to we want to yeah we want to compare we want to compare uh, we'll compare and contrast when we learn more <laughs> so so then you went to marvel you know and you marvel? were chris, chris
2: claremont's assistant i was chris claremont's assistant um I don't tell my bosses at DC, but I grew up a bit of a Marvel fanboy, So that was kind of, I know they're probably,
0: was there a corporate, was there a corporate difference between the two? And because in my dealings with them early on, you really got like, okay, DC was the, the button down suit uh, place. And Marvel was a little bit more of the clubhouse. In my current, you know, my 10 years. Go on. Yeah.
2: I mean, this was the late 90. 90- it's funny because the, uh, the boss in charge then was Bob Harris, who's now my current boss right? at DC. So it's- all come right. full circle um and this was right i remember very specifically like because i wanted to work in comics i was graduating from college and uh and i was like how do i get a job and like i remember just everybody being like comics are dead it's a dying industry marvel will be will be bankrupt next year right go you know sell paper sell encyclopedias door-to-door kid <laughs> you know i was like oh okay i'll go join the cia instead it was yeah it was this ridiculous yeah. as that fine um and so uh but yeah I, my favorite example of the corporate culture the difference i remember this very specifically, is, is dc i was like you got to check out the dc library i was like oh cool so he we went down and there was like a librarian who looked like right out of the guy from sandman you know he was like very like formal and he's like here's the thousands of books and the ancient the traditions and it was like all lockers and you go into some place and you get a card and they take pictures of you And then at Marvel, one of my jobs was, like, I was a continuity reviewer. I would see if if things match continuity. So I'd be like, I better go to the library and look up who Submariner's mother was. And the library was, like, it was basically a broom closet You know, you just opened it up, and it was just a bunch of poorly shelf shelf books that um there were just comics that were had been stapled together with a with a copy and there was copies missing everywhere, and they went. You know, there was a big recent gap, and there were huge gaps. There was nobody manning it, and there were just books scattered all over the place. I was like, this is that's pretty telling. Let, the two copies. let down,
0: man, massive. Hey, and I and I don't even know if you know, but you were at the summit, and maybe it was brought up or anything like that. Like, yeah, that hard library of hard copies of stuff. Like, is that staying in New York? Is it moving to Burbank? Because the guy, Art and Franco were even telling me they've been in the archive and everything. Yeah, the
2: DC library is huge. They showed us, we took a tour of the new Burbank building, which is awesome. It looks like it's something out of the crazy future. Um, And and we, like, toured the library, and it's just as huge. And the librarian looks exactly like he's still the Sandman librarian. He's probably that same guy oh that's uh, cool and yeah and he's just like a super eager and he was taking out books to show he took like this book of old like Kaniger Wonder Woman he put on there and we all started laughing and he showed us pictures of because Paul Levitz was there because he's um, he's writing the new Dr. Fate series yes and uh, and he showed us a picture of Paul Levitz at 17 like we've just hired this crazy young intern <laughs> and Paul's, that's, that's awesome super embarrassed.
0: well did Bob come did Bob Wayne come because I know he's not making the move but I wasn't sure if he, he, he was on the
2: trip or not nah, he wasn't there they 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 just hired the guy from Archie, to um, to do stuff. Yeah, it's sad. To do Bob Shepard. Yeah,
0: yeah. I don't know. I I. So yeah, not Segura. I I. And Alex was PR. He wasn't Bob. So yeah, a, or,
2: yeah, a, yeah. Also. I I don't know exactly how. Yeah, but I I met Bob at um. This is wow. This is way inside baseball. <laughs> but in case
0: no, you know no. Actually, Bob Wayne, regular on Word. Yes, Balloon exactly. For, right? for quite some time. Exactly. So no, I the Word Balloon listeners do know Bob Wayne and. Bob's part of the industry, and no, this transition is interesting, and I am curious, so if you don't mind.
2: Uh, yeah, I think Bob's retiring as far as I know. Um, yes, he is. Him, oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, I met him at uh, I met him at San Diego last year. He introduced our panel and said Grayson was his favorite book, so endorsed. Oh, that's really nice. Endorsed. I mean, he was- That's fantastic. He was probably lying, but just to, to take the effort to lie to me, I appreciate it, right? Like, I don't
0: believe the man who wrote Time Masters would lie <laughs> No, he's a really, really good guy, and I know he's an incredibly good ambassador to comics, not only publishing but also in his days in the direct market. Nice things will be said when his final, whenever his last day is. Real good guy.
2: Yeah, I did a panel, and I was on it with like Jeff Johns and Paul Levitz and a ton of people who I probably stood in line to get autographs from, and he like greeted me and made me feel comfortable at home. I was like, oh, oh thank God because I was so freaking nervous. So yeah, awesome. I had nothing but love for the dude.
0: That's cool, man. Did you have some intern Marvel uh,
2: stories uh, for us? Uh, intern Marvel, but my uh, what intern Marvel stories I've been working for Chris Claremont and his Fantastic Four days, and I mean basically my job was um, Chris at the time was something I think he was called a creative director or something, and he reviewed every script that came in, and and sort of. Put his fingers on it and, and said, "You know, good or bad," and then people chose to ignore him or not. I, I bet people were fairly annoyed being a writer now, but at the time it seemed very cool.
0: Was it wait to to like submissions? Like, was he kind of checking out the new people, or was he like in like uh, overseeing the line?
2: Both. He did both things. So we sort of we we it was it was actually from story point of view very influential on me because what we did was I read every single script that came into Marvel at that time, and it was it was a transition period because. It was still the old Marvel-style guys were still there. But really, I mean, people forget how revolutionary um, Kevin Smith was in the industry because he had just started his Daredevil run. And that changed everything in Marvel, basically, behind the scenes, because he wrote full script and he brought in this sort of movie aesthetic that um, that, that next generation of, you know, Bendis and Miller and uh, uh, ran with and, and took it a whole different direction. And that's right when I was there. I was reading Kevin Smith's scripts. Um, the only the only moment I remember is in that last issue when Kevin's when Spider-Man and Daredevil are having like this romantic moment or having this like nice moment on the part he wrote in the script. He's like, and then they start kissing and he got like sort of detailed in, in terms of them making out. He's like, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but but yes, yeah, so so that but, was. But
0: prior, but prior to Kevin's script, everybody else really was still doing Marvel stuff.
2: Well, it depended on, but a lot of people. Like, I was still reading Roger Stern. I remember Roger Stern's scripts are sure. very. Um, like just like two pages of plot. It was amazing that anyone could write. I I remember John Byrne's scripts were—he would write all the panel breakdowns and no page breakdowns. (laughs) I can't imagine writing like I write. I'm a crazy writer. I I I do full scripts and I'll even do layouts in my scripts. Um, Okay. I can't imagine writing the way these Marvel writers would write, like Howard Mackey and those kind of guys who would just—they would would literally put a plot on a page and then the artists would draw it and then they'd go in and they dialogue. They dialogue it. And um, and also oh and I, I remember you'd start to see through the Marvel because they had a pattern back then of how they would all would write and it, and it started to manipulate the scripts which I think eventually they broke but the pattern was there had to be an action scene to open the book and then you had an explanation scene and then an action scene and it sort of took place like that so every book would be a backwards book because they had to start with an action scene and then explain it so it would be inevitably like action 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 all oh, that was just a flashback to, to what 's going on here, so like every book was told in this weird time jump style, and once you sort of saw you start, it was like seeing the matrix, it was like you saw, started to see the code behind the books because I read every single <laughs> book that came out
0: did that influence uh the grace and futures end uh, issue
2: oh yeah, but I mean that that 's also influenced by it. i mean i I stole that from peter david
0: <laughs> i mean i mean uh, no, I mean, I totally created that. I wrote no, I, well, yeah, not no, not the first backward... What are you talking about, Seinfeld? The Indian episode where they go to India exactly. and everything. <laughs> so yeah, no, I understand, but I, I'm just yeah, I was wondering, and also you you played with time too in your in the time warp uh, special for Vertigo.
2: Yeah, so. I, I mean, both those were if anyway, my Futures End Grayson issues is written one page at a time backwards. Yeah, I, yes. Um, if you uh, Peter David wrote one of my favorite comics of all time, which is I think it's Star Trek Annual number three or something like that with Kurt Swan on an art. I have a page of it on my. Uh, wow! I know. Oh, it, it's, it's a it's Scotty' origin story. And it's written backwards, but it's not it's not page turn by page turn, but uh, it has you know a few pages in each one. It sort of starts sure, scene, scene by scene. Yeah, yeah, and it starts with Scotty Young and his wife, who you never heard of, has just died, and he gets the news, and it goes back and sort of explains their whole romance, and it's really sort of touching. Um,
0: oh wow! No, Peter's an amazing Star Trek writer. Oh, I always said, honestly, for me, when I see Peter, it is always. All right, we'll get to the comics, but right now, all right, so what's going on in uh, New Frontier and you know, he was doing the New Frontier yes, books for Star Trek for people who may not know. But yeah, I mean, no, but even before that, good especially like his DC run and so many great novels. So many great Star Trek novels from Peter David. He gets it.
2: Oh, are you dude, I am a huge Peter David Star Trek novel. Pro- I used to read like a Star Trek novel a book. I I'm, I'm a real big nerd. I don't know if people know about the either.
0: Well, no, we all are, clearly. Oh, good. It's all right. Yeah, I guess you're, it's, you're you're in the 12 step. You're in the right 12 step program. <laughs>
2: Yeah. methadone addicts are down the hall i hid this from everyone when i was a kid i didn't tell people so it's kind of hard to say i don't know why but yeah i used to read a star trek book a week and you always knew the peter davids were the best man especially the the Amzadi novels about the romance yes. oh my goodness yeah Yes. And he wrote the and best he, Borg story of all time. I can't remember what it's called, but I still can remember scenes from it. Um Oh, that's funny. I was going to say he wrote the best Q uh story. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah. His 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 novels were With but... with a bunch
0: of alternate universes, like three different uh Enterprise alternate universes. It was fantastic. Wow.
2: wow. Yeah, Peter I worship yeah. it, Peter David's. Yeah. His Spider-Man no, no. run, I think it's probably my favorite Spider-Man run. This Black Spider-Man run with the credits in the back. Oh, I love that uh-huh. one. Yep. Sin, you either. know and it's
0: if it, it, his uh, unfortunately, I'm just not a big X Men guy. I mean, Brian really it took ben, it took ben being on the <laughs> book regularly to get me to read really consistent X Men runs. Because I got to be honest, I'm not a big Claremont guy, and that's one of the reasons why Chris Claremont has not been on Word balloon. Uh, I I'm, I'm just it, it's not that important to me, and I don't want to. I feel like I would half acid, and he luckily has done so many other X Men related podcasts. It's like. You don't need me. He doesn't
2: need to talk to me. That's okay. Despite, despite my Marvel fanboys as a boy, I was more of a Legion of Superheroes guy than an X-Men guy. Atta boy. That's what we want to hear. Yeah, when I met Paul Levitz, that's when I get a little intimate.
0: I do the same thing to Paul every time I see him too, man. And Giffen too. I can't even
2: talk to Giffin. I can. Word, I'm, I get tongue-tied. I, I met him at one con. I'm like, I love – like Paul I know. He's actually a friend of the family. He knew my mother. So I know him a oh, that's little bit. Cool. Yeah. Uh, my mother was an executive at Warner Brothers, and Paul was obviously an executive.
0: Wow, that's really cool. What uh, what division of Warner Brothers did your mom work in?
2: She ran the, or she at the end of her career, she ran the, D- the DVD or home entertainment division. Wow. Yeah, she yeah, she was a, she uh she started off like we were dirt poor. Man, this is really deep digging into my life, but <laughs> I like it. We, I I grew up sort of deep poor. My father left early, and she went to Harvard with two kids, and then sort of wow. worked her way up in the industry. Harvard Business School? Harvard Law School over school, go on and um and then we moved back I'm from LA we moved back to California and she worked at um she was Mr. T's like agent and she worked at <laughs> that's a weird life and that's fantastic and she worked go at on. Fox I remember um the, I remember very specifically her coming home because like they had a complaint because they she was always a home video person and we put on Die Hard, the movie, and it was about widescreen. No one had done widescreen before. And my mom's like, People want to do widescreen. It seems like a stupid idea. And we looked at it on the screen. We watched Bruce Willis's head expand upwards. And she's like, Maybe we should change this. And um, yeah, no, she's, like she's a very, My mother uh, helped invent DVD. That's what she's probably most known for. She won an Emmy. In what
0: for. way? In what way did she help invent
2: DVDs? Uh, so her. So she was part of a four person team that was led by her boss, who's Warren Lieberfeld, Farb, Warren Lieberfarb, who's still, uh, and. Um, who's still what? Still around. My mother passed. Unfortunately. Okay. So I, oh, I'm maybe sorry. He's a, Go on. Maybe he's a word balloon listener. I don't know. He used to date Faye Dunaway, so that's, that's my. um wow. uh, Anyways. A Faye Dunaway, huge word balloon. Fans. That's what I'm saying. That's That would be the case. She listens all that the time. time. <laughs> she loves it. <laughs> But yeah, she. But you know, she doesn't know how to do CGS or word balloon. She's like, "It's pants. It's John. It's pants. It's John." That's a really <laughs> dumb joke.
0: That was a, China, a horrible was a Chinatown joke. reference. I knew exactly where you were
2: going. Um. Uh.
0: So. So wait. So you, yeah. So how? So your mom's working for for Lieber So Bellen, yeah.
2: So what, So she worked at the Warner Home Video, and I mean, it was at the, the time of Laser Discs, and when CDs came out, it was an obvious idea to do a movie on a disc, and the her team sort of led that way, and they worked with a. With a team of Japanese uh, at Toshiba, um, my mom almost in Japan like half of the time, and um, and they helped develop. DVD. And there was a big competition. I mean, I remember the D V was first called TAZ because it spun. Okay. And um, and so all her files in her office were labeled TAZ, and then they had to change it because they wanted everyone to use it. They were going to make the type because they owned all the Warner Bros. owned all the copyrights, and so they were going to. Um, they give them to everybody for free so everyone would use them and then they had to change the name and my mother came home with like the names of what it should be because the obvious name was vd but you know they couldn't make it right, right. so they're like like okay oh, and she had like, the, like the logos and they're like and we're like oh, how about dvd and she like showed it to my brother and i were like yeah that could work <laughs> and took it back
0: yeah. yeah someone was telling me the dvd is not a uh, digital video disc and i forget what the anagram stands for i think i as far as I knew, it was digital video disc. But, yeah, I remember. Okay, well, you know, like that, hey, man, you were close. You know, I, I believe it was our friend uh, Blaine Dowler, the Canadian Yoko Chips, as we like to call him on, <laughs> uh, on the R.E.F. Oh yeah podcast, whose attention to detail is always appreciated and rarely disputed. But uh, I don't know. I like it, though.
2: Yeah, and her group <laughs> won an Emmy, and I got, like, the technical <laughs> Emmys that they make fun of. And I got to go to the— That's, that's fantastic. I got to hold the Emmy and, like, hold it up and get, like, a little gift box with a T-shirt in it. Yeah, so that's what I'll be remembered for impressive. most of all. When I think
0: that's I, I was I was nominated for a uh, an Illinoisan. Look any, at you! Probably, I was. I voted for, for you. Time. Thank you, thank you. I uh, so I did not go to the dinner, but I wish I had. <laughs> um, you didn't go. You
2: were nominated, and you didn't go to the ceremony because
0: you know? I knew. Well, I knew, yeah, I knew I wasn't going to win because I was like um, an Andy Richter on uh, this weekly sports talk show. And the the anchor, the Conan O'Brien of the show, was also nominated. And it's like, well, if anyone's going to win, it's going to be the host. And so Mike got it for the weekly show, and I got it for the special. You get, And I'm like, you know, the weekly show's going to win. So, yeah. So I have a certificate.
2: The Emmy didn't you know, show up. Look, Too cool for the Emmys. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, well, well, but also
0: you had to pay, like, for your uh, – it wasn't free. Was it free? Yeah, that's the yeah, that's the dirtiest trick. It's like, well, of course you're coming to the Emmys, and of course you'll pay uh, two hundred dollars to come. And I'm like, <laughs> but I'm nominated. They're like, yeah, we don't care. <laughs> like, what do you think? This is the Oscars? <laughs> ha! This is the Chicago Emmys? Are you kidding me? Both of the clown emceed one year. <laughs> so, so did that because your mom worked in you know the entertainment industry? Did that lead you in any way to writing at all?
2: Uh, let me uh, absolutely opposite direction of writing. My, mo- my mother, I grew up in sort of a Hollywood environment and my mom's opinion uh, was that y- you become a doctor and a lawyer, you don't go to Hollywood, basically. <laughs> I okay. mean, she's w- wonderfully encouraging. She always is like, she knew I loved comics. I remember saying specifically when I was in high school, like, I want to write comics. She's like, if you want to write comics, you got to get good grades. And like, I was like, all right, I'm getting good grades. But she was just of the opinion that like, to win in Hollywood was basically winning a lottery and you couldn't sort of work hard enough to climb that ladder. Like, that wasn't sort mm-hmm. of in her DNA. She, I mean, she was, she was the g- grandson of Jewish immigrants. And, you know, they had that sort of, that, that third, de- that, that generation that she's from is the doctor-lawyer generation. And then the generation I'm from is, like, the will fuck up the legacy generation. <laughs> 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 like, it's like the immigrants and then the actual people who open the business and the doctor-lawyers and the, the fuck-ups. And that's where I am. Yeah, the slackers. The slackers, exactly. yeah. So, I'm the, so, so she didn't, and my brother is a musician, wanted to be a musician. And so she was just like, no, go to law school, become something with your life. Uh, don't become another waiter who wants to be a screenwriter who wants to be a <laughs>
0: <laughs> Understood. I understand. Uh, so uh, so why law enforcement and why the CIA? Um,
2: I was working at the Justice Department at the time because, again, be a lawyer. And, uh, and 9-11 happened. And um, I think I had read too many comic books in my youth. I don't know if that's a problem of common people, but I sort of had that like – Okay, big bad guy, I have to find a way to fight it, I think sort of written in my DNA. And so uh, after 9-11, I just volunteered, like a million other people. That's terrific,
0: man. Absolutely. No, that's wonderful. And that's the kind of story I was hoping to hear more of, and forgive me, of my two seconds of politics. But when President Bush said, go out and shop... Instead of instead of no, you know, hey, let's let's all try and like get together and and you know make a better country and stuff like that, or and protect ourselves or whatever. Yeah, that just kind of bugged me, and I'm like, oh, that's you kind of missed a good opportunity for some good national service, and then get people inspired to truly want to make a difference. So good for you, man.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't. I'll tell you, it's absolutely nothing special. I mean, I, people tell me. I remember like comics ruin you or comics give you bad morals or violence and stuff. Comics, like, made my moral universe, like, and I still think there's a responsibility to all comic creators of, like, when I grew up, like, there were bad guys and there were good guys and you wanted to be a good guy. And I, I think that had a profound impact on me and hopefully sure. It does. And I, if you meet people in the comic industry, people who love comics, who came up with them and sort of have that in their heart, it, it really has, um, it, it makes for a lot of good people. If you if you, if you spend your life reading about the Avengers conquering forces of evil i really th- do think it's underrated as a moral compass sure no
0: and i would agree with you absolutely that yeah there are clear-cut good guys and bad guys absolutely and the uh, the goals and the and the uh stakes are very clearly laid out for a kid to appreciate
2: and yeah that's good yeah be, that's all yeah, right. you want to be captain america i mean i i, I mean just, i mean you know i'm the huge uh We'll get to this later, but like more, I I love dark heroes and I love ambiguity, but I I I also love just heroes winning a good fight.
0: Dude, I covered sports, but I always refer to it as my Clark Kent life and everything. (laughs) Because I had George Reeves Clark Kent, who wasn't afraid of his own shadow, you know, the scared guy and the and the wimp and everything like that. Like, that's what I love about the '50s Superman show is they want, like, as much as, like, God, I wish Superman was here, half the time when they're tied up, I wish Mr. Kent were here. He'd know what to do. He was Clark Kent, investigative reporter.
2: I was having a huge, this is the Bat Summit, but, like, a huge argument with, <laughs> with creators of whether Clark Kent could take down Batman, which seems like an absurd proposition. Take down in, in what Well, way? I mean, everybody knows Bruce Wayne could take down Superman, right? Like, that's that's kind of an accepted lore at this point after Dark Knight. Well, I, yeah, Well, that Batman
0: would find a way to... Yeah. Def- you know, disarm or, or, or neutralize Superman. Yeah. Okay. So the
2: question is, could Clark Kent do the reverse? Could Clark Kent find a way to disarm or beat Superman? If, if Superman didn't have powers, would he stand a chance against Batman? Go on. And, you know, most people are like, no, he wouldn't. It's just, it's just, they dismiss just his out, right? But I was, I was like, then what's the point to the character? Like if he doesn't have that core, if he, if he can't beat Batman without his powers, then he's just a powerful guy. Like, you have to write that story where Clark Kent, somehow through being Clark Kent and through being Superman and having those values can, you know, yeah, so th- these, are the, no, these are the nerd no. arguments that happen at Bat, Bat Summits.
0: Well, that's, no, and uh, I know that they happen at Marvel Summits, too, and and I completely agree with you. He has to be smart. He has to have a good analytical brain, and yes, Batman is, you know, Sherlock Holmes in a cape, but Clark's got to be a smart guy, and I agree with you, and I think not because not only just to get access to the various things that he finds out about, but to also like figure them out uh, intellectually. And I and I yeah. do think that I mean that you know the, the Joe Casey story where he takes down the uh, the yeah, knockoff, yeah. uh Yeah, what were they? I forget what they were called. The uh. Manchester Black. <laughs> uh,
2: you yeah, know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, the, the elite. Sword, the elite. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah, the elite. I'm writing. I'm writing it. Ready and, to, uh, oh, well, I can't talk about that. But yeah. <laughs>
0: I can well there. I oh, say, son of a gun. <laughs> uh, but that's all right. I know I'm D, I'm talking to a DC person, so obviously it's like, oh yeah, we'll I could
2: say. That. I can't say anything about X. I'll th- okay. I want to talk DC. You don't have enough DC people on. I want to talk DC because DC. I think from the outside, people think it's very snuffy and old, and they don't realize how many like young, incredibly motivated creators there are going to DC Summit. I Great was, creators. Like, I was like, we got to. You guys got to get out and start yapping and get in and like. You know, it's it's.
0: I, I, it. Well, is that is that the, again? Is that the creators or is that the front office?
2: <sighs> I, we we got to talk DC summer. Should we get to DC Summit now or should we go back to CIA? Where should we go?
0: Is a change coming? Is there is there something positive? If you've got that information, sure. I, we can get back to your CIA stuff in a minute. I was,
2: I my, 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 you know, I haven't been in DC. For, I think I started about a year ago. Okay. And I started with a transition. Grayson was sort of a lead book in a attempt to do something different. Because okay. they had a turnover at editor editorial at the Batman office, mm-hmm. um, they brought in Mark Doyle, who's a freaking genius editor from Vertigo. Yes, he's working on Scalps. You know, I don't think enough said, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and he took over the Bat books, and I had been working with him. I had done some Vertigo stuff, um, and we had been developing some stuff, and it had all gone nowhere. And finally, he got this promotion. He's like, "Let's do something fantastic over at DC." And, uh, and he offered me Grayson, he's one of my favorite characters, and, I, and Tim was writing on it, and we were going to write together, and, um, and I remember thinking, okay, this is DC, here comes sort of the politics, here comes that you can't do this, you can't do that, you know, um, sure. stay in this box, you have to do house style, I was sort of ready for that kind of criticism. Basically, though, the the biggest or or just, or it's not criticism parameters. Parameters like okay, the Arrow TV show is doing this in three months, so you have to stick to there. Or, sure. Or even like I actually don't mind that kind of stuff because it seems kind of coordinate. But like you might the Arrow TV show might do this kind of stuff in three months, and we don't want to go outside of this box. And don't basically I was ready for them to say don't take risks. And Doyle, who's got this very independent creator mind, was, was I was like okay, you know I, I you know. Well, like, like it, we wrote the script one way, and it was very sort of safe, and we were going to talk, and, and, um, and so I was like, look, you guys, I don't want you to write this for, like, some DC corporate office. I want you to write the comic book you want to write in the craziest way. I want you to write the comic book you want to read and let me worry about the politics of it. And he just put that on himself. And... And I was like, that's, that's going to fucking fall apart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, I, I worked that Bob Harris. He's a strong man. He's going to slap this all down. That Dan DiDio, I've heard that word balloon impression of him. He sounds very tough. All right. And um,
0: I don't like this. You're going to change everything. I don't like you're it You're going to
2: run all. this by a market. And it, it, it turned out to be absolutely true. And then my first, I did Good. Um, San Diego. And both Bob and Dan pulled me aside. And they're like, yes, you, take more risks. Do crazy stuff. That's what they both told me to my face. I met. We had a, Tim and I met with Bobby Chase and Bob Harris, and they were so nice. And I'm sure I will, will change my tune and be a bitter, horrible comic creator a year from now. You can interview me. But anyways, yeah, so I was, I was sort of expecting that corporate culture. And, and uh, Chase and Harris were like, no, we want risks. We want young. We want diverse. Uh, we, we want you guys to, like, be in tune with the old stuff. But, you know, bring, bring the cool And Tim and I, you know, Tim is a cutting edge kind of writer and and we looked, Tim's like my brother. And we we, we were like, okay, let's do it. And they said, yeah. And then, you know, I'm doing this, uh, I'm doing two other projects now. And it's the exact same thing. And therefore, I'm with all three of the major editors right now. And every editor is the exact same thing. Let's, let's take risks. Let's do crazy. And this is
0: post whatever and – and forgive me, there's Convergence and then I forget what the other – Yeah,
2: there's uh, a new launch. They have a name for it. I don't know if it's been announced. Again, maybe I'm a little corporate because I – but they have a new name. No, no,
0: no. And, and, and truly, listen, I, you don't have – please don't feel – You know, obviously, I don't want you to get in trouble. So I am interested in the summit. I am interested in whatever you can say about what is waiting on the other side of the events this summer. But yeah, if you, you know if you can't if they haven't announced a title for those books yet. That's I okay. think
2: all the titles have been announced and the, No, but I'm saying like
0: a, oh yeah like the yeah, overall.
2: overall title yeah I know yeah I know what it is but I don't think I can say it maybe it's been a, but that's, yeah this this okay. it's, it's not like it's not a relaunch because there's half the books but I think it's a it's a very progressive attitude and I I, I, I literally said this because they sat us down they showed us a presentation of all the new books and then they gave us their editorial philosophy and I was like you should just record this and put this out on the internet because. This is the opposite of the conspiracy that everyone thinks DC has under their belt. Um, and it, it, the, the idea was like, we, we, we want uh, diverse creators from diverse backgrounds. We want you guys to tell amazing, crazy stories that take risks. We don't want you tied down by events and those kind of things. We want you to be, be yourselves. I mean, it was everything you'd want to hear from a company. Um, okay. And and well, and then and then we broke off into groups, and we sort and like the bat group got together, and we realized, hey, we're just a bunch of young guys who love Batman. And this, I mean, it really felt like the Marvel bullpen. We're like, we just want to bounce ideas off each other. It didn't feel at all stuffy or corporate or crazy or like someone was keeping us good. down. Okay. Um, so amazing, yeah, I mean, I sound like a freaking cheerleader. I mean, uh, let me tell no, you, there must well, be something bad.
0: No, but I think that's no, but if you really are excited, that's good, and also, um. You know I'll be honest when when the while it's good that uh they've made the announcement that they are taking these very bold directions and and, and chances on a bunch of new titles, they did essentially try to do the same thing with the new fifty two and a lot of things sounded interesting um, there were a lot of changes early on creatively and and things really got kind of screwy quickly and because of that, I think. As excited as people are about the prospects of what is coming down the road, and we'll absolutely sample them, I also think there's a bit of concern of they tried to do that three years ago, and a lot of the books weren't that good, or several of the books weren't that good. That you know that were done with the best intent. The Mister Terrific book didn't work out. The uh john they had john rosman do uh was it zombie i forget what it was called wasn't it Zombie? no not zombie Um,
2: yeah
0: or was it zombie with an x yeah
2: um i forgot to call it yeah i know what you're talking about yeah the so yeah you know
0: there there was that there was i -I zombie itself obviously Robson rockwell walked away i mean you know well that's true but um uh oh god uh there was a Wildstorm character that ron mars wrote for a while Um, there was the sexual sexualization of of Starfire that that pissed off a bunch of people. There were attempts to do something different and also do them with. You had the Catwoman book had its controversy at at, at the beginning and everything, well intended, truly, the, by all, all involved. But unfortunately, the market wasn't happy with those choices. So, you know, I think I.
2: That's I think why. there's been some sort of ma- major changes in just those few years. I think um, the, the big differences to me are the books that came out that everyone's looking to now. And they, they're not always the most successful books. But the ones like people mention over and over again is everyone wants to be the next Hawkeye. Everyone wants to be the next Ms. Marvel. Everyone wants to be um, the next Batgirl. Uh, and yes. God I hope someone's saying Grayson. But <laughs>
0: – but, um, hey, man, no, I uh, go on because I do think that you're, you guys are in a special place. But go ahead and then I'll but tell
2: you. But those being like, – I don't think – we didn't have those models back then of success and how th- that audience could come to the books. And I think the audience has evolved even in the last few years. And you're seeing this in television with the success of more diverse shows and more interesting shows and the developments. I, th- I think we're, we're, the audience is in a different place than it was in 52 or I don't think the audience, that's the wrong thing to say well the the, the the powers that be have recognized that the audience is in a different place that's a better way to put it.
0: okay and and I would agree I would absolutely agree with that
2: and I and I'm glad that the
0: powers that be recognized that the audience is in a different place um I also think and maybe it will be proven by what you're telling me and what they actually show us but it it seemed very obvious That just like you were fearful of the attitude when you were entering into Grayson, that wasn't a reputation that came from out of nowhere. It seems like DC is like, hey, we want to change and make it better and and give more fresh, exciting books. And again, that's why I do think that there is optimism and interest in what's coming. But I also think it's like, okay, but you're still going to have to show me. (laughs) They're going to give an honest chance With a lot of these uh, books that have female characters in the lead, I I hope that these books can last longer than 8 to 12 issues. And that's not just a woman's book. That's any new book where they try something new. And really talented people, men or women or of all colors, have failed with good quality books that the publisher has decided, yeah, but this book costs too much to make. And it's not making enough back. We're going to have to cancel it. That's a business decision. Mm-hmm. But they have to also know that, like you said, they need to appeal to this new audience. And I, I hope that they know. you know, And I hope the audience responds as well. They, the tough news is it is a different world. I, I, I'm sure you're reading more image than you ever have. Yes. I know I am. I know that a lot of this new audience comes from that background as well. It's pretty obvious. So... It's a question of the, the, the powers that be, being willing to let their book gestate and, and find its audience. Um, I know Didio's even said on record that a lot of these books, I think, are guaranteed at least, I think he said 12 issues, if not 18. Woohoo. I can't remember. Sweet. Yeah, I know. I hope so. No, and honestly, Tom, I, I, I appreciate your point of view because you're, you're obviously dealing with it from a creator standpoint. And, and you know, my, my editorial isn't directed at you. But it is this kind of question of I don't know I, I I hope so but I'm saying it as a reader put your money where your mouth is and let the audience find this book and also realize that it is a much more diverse and spread out audience and yeah maybe maybe the days of the consistent you know high five figure or six figure book might be over and maybe eighty thousand is the new top selling number for barring a Batman event or a, or a big you know a big wide. Y- you know, line event or something like that.
2: I don't know. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> let, let me tell. I, let me answer this with a story. Um, just because I, I mean, just just for me to keep rattling sure. about being like this. I, but, okay, so I, they came to me with a project for Omega Men, and it's just, I don't know if people know what Omega Men is, but it's an old eighties property.
0: Oh no, we, that's on the list to talk to you about Omega Men. Go on.
2: <laughs> and uh, it's basically rebels against the empire. And um, uh, and they came to they they pitched it to me the day the weekend Guardians of the Galaxy came out. I was like, I get it. You know, you just we want DC Guardians of the Galaxy. You want to make a six hundred million dollar movie. I was like, and you want me to write just the the, the DC version of the Marvel book? Fantastic! <laughs> I was like, I will take that gig any day of the week. And I pitched them basically DC Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm a huge as, as every single creator is um, fan of silver age so I, I got like a bunch of like little silver i just got some you know, atomic knight mixed up in there and and i you know got a legion character and i you know like a ragtag group of rebels get together and it's kind of funny about it and i pitched it to them and i got a call back being like you just pitched this guardians of the galaxy in DC, i was like yeah isn't that what you want I'm like no 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 we want something crazy we want something totally different that comes from your experience as a cia officer we, we, we want you to, to deal with what actual rebels are like in the field people who are actually being oppressed um by horrible regimes and have to go against that. We we want your take on that instead. I was like, no, don't, wow. don't, are you sure? I mean, you this is, it was the weekend Guardians of the Galaxy came out and they're like, yeah, and they rejected the pitch. And I went back to them with a much more grounded in sort of my real experience and a much more risky pitch uh, with, with the characters and sort of where they were at. And and they said, yes, this is what we want. And that's how Omega Men got born. It, 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 I mean, that that's not, I mean, that's, that's like a, example like i could tell you what they say to us on the like charts it'd be like take risks so that actually happened that's a thing that's going to happen and i mean i just signed off on that's, the art of the first issue it's 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 going It's gets going
0: so so all right well let's stick with omega men for a second because i did want to ask about it so i mean this is another one of those classic uh direct market 80s books that was like the question or god i'm trying to think of like some of those really great just you know that were of its, it's time and really you know Tari Force, a good one. There you go. Um, so yeah, how many of the old Omega Men are in the new book?
2: Uh, well, I can't. We haven't done the official launch, oh, okay. so I'm sorry to sort of tease it. Not okay, because
0: to... I thought I saw. I thought I saw a promo piece. They put of a art promo piece that of might... art that was not from our book.
2: Because, <laughs> oh, yeah, they, it, that was an old. Um, oh crap! His name's uh, um, Pascal Ferry. Maybe. Um, anyways, they they, t- they took oh, an Ferris. interior page. I think it was actually from the Wikipedia page of oh. Omega Men, and put it up there. Um, it was a cool piece of art. They have like omega tattoos and stuff, but it's not the Omega Men you'll see. We're gonna release some art pretty soon, but interesting, yeah. That's okay. So that's not the lineup or sort of the version of the Omega Men you'll see. But we are drawing a lot on the old. It won't be like I said, like taking a character from here and there. It'll it'll be drawn from that Omega Men world of the eighties. Yeah. Uh, And was that Giffen? I can't remember now who. Yeah, it was Giffen and a guy named um Silfer. I'm saying his name Robert Silfner Silner, Silfer.
0: Okay. Did you have a, I mean like you said, you're afraid of Giffen, but did you have a chance at all to talk to Giffen? I no? did, he
2: wasn't at the summit. I, I, well, I or but, to, but about Omega Man? No, or? I haven't gone – I haven't seen him since. I I, I talked to Levitz about it. I was like, God, tell me the stories behind it. And then we got distracted because I I've, I asked him other questions about – like he was telling me about Alan Moore and, and – so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm an Alan Moore junkie. If you read my stuff, you probably don't. Uh, I do know that. Um, And he was telling me about like um, – uh, what's it called uh, Twilight of the superheroes and like the meetings I was like oh my oh, god yeah,
0: I love that online I love what, whatever you know is online in terms of that story it sounds oh, it's amazing so, yeah it's
2: so it's so and it's if, if anyone hasn't read that the Twilight of superheroes it's like a it starts with like a five page lecture on how to do a, a crossover correctly like just read that for that just the, the amazing insights <laughs> he has and like the subtle backslaps at Marv Wolfman for writing Crisis <laughs> um, hilarious that, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, no, that's like so we got distracted. So I never. Yeah, uh, it was written by a guy named Ross, uh, Robert Silf. I'm gonna say it he He's actually in, in bad shape now because he was in a car accident. So uh, I feel, uh, so I can't. Talk, he's around, but um, he's in a car accident. And uh, he wrote the first 13 issues. And yeah, it was. It's a very bizarre series. If you read it now, read it through. Uh, it's probably most famous because it features two Alan Moore backup stories in the la- in the okay. later issues. Um, so, if you buy any like Best of Alan Moore, you always get two Omega Men stories. So, if you've seen like the Spider Guild story or the. Oh. Um, those are Omega Men stories.
0: I didn't realize that. Wow. No, that's really when I got back to the direct market, was as Omega Men was winding down. And I remember, at least in my store, uh, this is Bloomington, Illinois, but yeah, they were like incredibly like, no, it's a really cool, very, you know not a normal sci-fi book and they're really interesting characters and then of course certainly when they were brought back in uh, Rebels and Legion you know it. You, I, I've always had a slight fascination with the Omega Men and was happy to hear that you were getting it I know you're a good sci-fi fan and everything yeah, so.
2: it's a very odd series because it's you can tell there's like a tension between ed- it's one of those series you read and you read the tension in it it's kind of like reading like late F. Scott Fitzgerald where you kind of can read the the alcohol on the page because okay <laughs> Um and because c- c- like it starts off with a very sort of cliche like Tigor has a fight with Primus over who will control it and Tiger t- and Primus is and, and Tiger's like, I'm gonna fight the rebellion instead of you, and then he's like, No, I'll fight the rebellion. Tiger wins the fight and goes on and fights the rebellion, you're like, oh well, this will last a while. And then like in the fifth book he wins the he wins the fight, and you're like, well, you still have forty issues to go, and you just beat the the Empire. What are you gonna do? It's a very and you can tell it, like, sort of wasn't supposed to go there. And then, like, Lobo's introduced, and that becomes a bizarre subplot. Yes. And then in uh, yes. issue, I think, 13, um, the head writer leaves, and he writes, like, a, you know, go, not a go-fuck-yourself letter, but basically a, I had disagreements disagree editorial, I don't like this. And right. they published it in the
0: issue. I remember. No, this is the thing. Exactly, man. And then
2: Doug Munch takes over for a while, and then they got the, the letter was Todd Klein, who's the, probably the greatest living or – the greatest letter of all time. And then he takes over writing duties for the last like 20 issues. So it's, it's very, it's a very interesting run and the behind the scenes must've been crazy. Uh, I I know way too much about the Omega man.
0: No, that's cool, man. Uh, No, that's, that's interesting. No, but you know, honestly it's, and and again, not, not knowing what is coming and, and how these events are going to shake out and to what degree, uh, any level of, if not continuity alignment, and how each book might impact each other or anything like that. Grayson, it seems on the surface can operate outside of the DC universe despite the fact that you are still able to throw a bunch of DC universe people in Grayson and still have it feel like a DC universe book. That was my concern when it when it first was announced that if Dick was going and you know in the cold yeah. and then going to be a secret agent, it's like all right, well like Does that mean that he's not going to, you know, have connections to the DC universe? Because it's always been fun watching that first wave of sidekicks grow up and be their own heroes now. And, and, you know, Dick obviously is, is the best example of that and should be. And on the one hand, it is great that he gets his own series, but, you know, I, I know in my conversations with Jeff Johns and stuff that, uh, just like everyone in the, if there's one guy that is universally loved by the DC universe, all the heroes, it's Dick yeah. Grayson. Everybody <laughs> loves Dick. And it's like, and you know, and then it sounds dirty when you say it that way. Everybody <laughs> everything loves everything about Dick
2: always sounds dirty.
0: It's true, but and that's but that's the great thing about him, and also supports the dynamic between him and Bruce, is that yeah, you know, it's like all right, Bruce is an ass, but we all have to deal with him because he's the best. Meanwhile, it's like. Guess what? Dick is awesome. Everybody loves him, and, you know, and he's great. And that's, you know, and that's why the times in the right hands when he gets to be the hero and, and truly solve the problem and stuff like that, we're all like, yeah, that's great. Of course he did it, and He's, he's like, gonna be awesome.
2: Yeah, that's, when we got through the assignment for the, the, the Grayson thing, we wanted to have him outside the DCU for a little bit just to establish him in this new role, and then sure. come back back to it and see how that goes like, like we, we I mean the, the whole the, the plan was and we pretty much executed as planned was the first season which ends with issue 8 which comes out March 4th by it twice okay was basically Dick Grayson super spy establishing that the second season will have much more impact on the DCU in general and you're going to start seeing the payoff of these bat, uh, these bat summits and these DC summits where you know well, you know, Brendan Fletcher and I sit down and we talk about Batgirl and Dick Grayson for an hour over drinks. You know, this, <laughs> it pays off. Um, so we we, we we know that Dick Grayson is an amazing character who should be in the DCU and, and bounce off DCU characters. And we want to have that dynamic. We just wanted to establish him as a spy first, basically. Just
0: to... No, I understand that. But still, Midnighter shows up. Yeah. Helena's there. Uh, they uh, That is Huntress, isn't yes, it? Yes,
2: that's Helena Bernelli huntress Okay, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. All right, Created by Joe sure. Stanton
2: or co-created by Joe Stanton, who also co-created the Omega Men. And
0: Paul Levitz, right? Wasn't it Joe Stanton and uh, Paul Levitz yes, who created yeah, Huntress? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah, the real Huntress. Yeah, and Joe,
2: Joe Stan and Marv Wolfman did Omega Men. But both Joe Stanton is, is controlling my life. He's haunting me. I'm that's cool. His, which I'm looking at right now above my desk. He's uh, a, still doing Dick Tracy, I believe. Yeah, dude, he's the best. He's, so, he's super nice. I met him at, here, at, a nice. CGS, at the CGS Con. Um, that's where I first met him.
0: Oh, that's yeah. nice. Uh, that's very that's cool. I met him in uh I met him in New York, I think, which is crazy given that he writes Dick Tracy and everything <laughs> and Eric draws Dick Tracy. Uh although he's not a Chicagoan. And um yeah, that's I met him in New York and very sweet. And yeah, I've talked to him a couple times uh off off the record and I do want to get him on. Oh, he must uh, have amazing I, stories. Yeah, man, no, E man and uh right? You know, I mean, yeah, Green Lantern stuff back in the '80s, and, and no, I'm a I'm a long time
2: Joe Staten fan. absolutely. Helena Bertinelli's origin story that um, Joey Cavallari wrote. Yes, yeah, so, oh, yeah, so I, I, I'm getting my history wrong. So, yeah, him and Levitz created the original Earth Two. Right, Elena, Elena and him went. and Joey C. Uh, Joey Cavallari created the yeah. Bertinelli one, which is the one we use.
0: Sure, and then and then yeah, exactly, and that was the one that Greg used yeah, too. The one that Greg used. So absolutely no and no that's what but that's the thing kg beast and stuff i mean that's the thing luckily the dc universe is so huge that even though dick was out being a secret agent and stuff there were still elements of the dc universe popping up so it never even though he was doing his own thing it still involved dc universe people at least to me so i didn't feel like you know yes absolutely he was as disconnected as i was expecting him to be
2: yeah and we didn't make him like this sort of Death spy. He's a super spy. He's a James Bond. You know, he's not a, sort yeah. of a super realistic spy. Um, so he could sort of he could still hang with the superheroes in that in that way. Yeah, to, uh, you you can't stop Tim and I from trying to play with every toy we want to play with. Basically, <laughs> like Tim and I worship the DCU on some bizarre Grant Morrison level, um, and we want to play with all the toys. Basically,
0: is um. Did you have any interest in, in – and maybe not time, or maybe you did. I don't know. You're not doing any of the Convergence books, are you?
2: No. The Convergence thing happened when – I mean it was planned a long time ago, and I was not very well known then. I, I remember sitting with Andreyko at um at a, like a, a bat dinner, and he was like one of the first guys hired to do a book. And I was, I was like, well, what is it? How do you get in? What, what do you do? And he's like, I cannot talk about it. It is the utterly most secret thing. I was like, we're all sitting here <laughs> – like, Scott Snyder's over there telling us what's going to happen to Batman the next two years, and you can't tell me what's going to happen this little—nope, nothing. You will know nothing. You will see nothing. I was like, oh, man. Um, yeah, I know. I regret it. I, to write two issues of that, uh, I wish I had gotten in. So.
0: Sure. Hell, are you kidding me? I was happy for Hillary Barta. He's doing uh, the covers for the um, Freedom Fighters.
2: Oh, there are so many, of the, uh, so many little things geez, that yeah. i excited to read. I, I don't know.
0: I was always more of a DC guy than a Marvel guy. But I really do hope that there are some shreds of the way they used to do things that do find a way of coming back in the existing books. Because some of the change for change sake, I can appreciate wanting to get new readers. Obviously that didn't work and that's why we're getting 24 new titles along with the stuff that does seem to be working. So, I mean, there have been good stuff. I like what Lemire did. Man, on everything I like a lot of what Scott has done. On everything I like your guys' book. <laughs> I, like, I like Grayson. Woo-hoo, I think good. I don't know what the hell's going on with Superman. It just doesn't feel like Superman yet. It it just I, you know it's weird. And it was I was thinking about this. Do you remember from or and again this might be before your time, but maybe you've read it during the Bronze Age? There was a series called Superman: The In Between Years, mm. and it literally was. He was too old to be Superboy, but not quite working at the Daily Planet yet. It was his college years, and it was a backup series. And I, I want to get a guy like Bob Bob Rizekas on or something like that because I'm pretty certain that Bob wrote stories. Marty didn't, Pasco didn't, uh, but I'd like to find some some guys that did because that was a great series. And I think there's a place to tell those stories and stuff, but I think they should be alongside Adult Superman. I I, I don't I still don't think making him Twenty-five years old. I don't think was a good
2: idea. Superman is is a tough, tough character to get right and to do exciting stories with. And um, yeah, I mean, I, and I, I respect what they're doing. I mean, I'm not gonna say that. I Don't respect. Oh, sure. But um, but it, it. I I don't envy the task of of, of Greg and Jeff working yeah. on. Fine, fine oh, stuff.
0: absolutely. No, and yeah. Pac. No, listen, man. Pac's awesome. Soul is Soul's, uh, you know Charles Soul too. And 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 I, and I agree. I don't I don't blame Greg. And I think by the way, Greg, especially on Batman Superman, doing a lot of really neat stuff. That and well, it helped having the Earth Two Superman and Batman yeah. in, there, in there too, because they felt more like the real guys. Um, yeah. And, and by the way, everyone I know is writing and drawing these stories with the best intentions of making the best stories they can. It's just um, yeah, I don't know. There's something missing, specifically with Superman in this post Fifty Two era. And it might be something as stupid as just those changes in the costume are still, like,
2: off-putting to me. Have you seen the new costume? The new costume is a little closer to It's better.
0: One. Yeah, it's it's a little – but you know whose design I wish they had taken was Nikola's and the Earth 2 Superman's design where they kind of incorporated what was the yellow belt into this, like, kind of break in the costume. And they put just a little bit more yellow in there. And, again, I mean these are all just Picayune kind of nitpick things. And I, I'm the first person that cringes – when they hear somebody like me right now, like, that's your problem with Superman. it It is more of a character thing where it just seemed like they tried too hard to be different for different sake. And I can appreciate not wanting, you know, Lois and Clark to be married anymore. But to drive them as far apart as they initially did, it was just like, okay, whatever. And then just – it took too long to get things going because, again, there were so many creative changes. I don't mean to keep haranguing. No, no, no. But I mean – yeah, I mean,
2: if you know. you had, I mean, over the last 10 years, if you had to pick, like, some of the top 10 graphic novels that have come out, you might pick American Born Chinese, which is a freaking brilliant novel.
0: I completely right? agree, and I, and I am very optimistic with what's coming in this first arc. Uh, go and, on. And,
2: and to take the author of that, which is – it seems very simple, but it's actually a fairly radical book, and what it does with stereotypes and coming together and the structure of it sure. is, is, is very cutting edge. And to take the writer of that and to put him on Superman – I mean, I, I'm excited about that. I think that could be cool. That shows some risk taking, and maybe some new direction on that.
0: We'll see. I'm, I'm I I am curious enough to open it up. Um, I mean, and I was excited prior to that, you know, with Ramita coming on drawing. But like what Jeff has currently done, I don't think is different enough. Yeah, no, I think I think the change that's coming, I will be w- willing to will, to check it out, and I do think it is a good angle to explore. Um, we'll see. But, yeah, I, I just – and also part of me, although I think obviously if you want the buzz to come from somewhere, it should come from the Superman title. I don't know what's happening with action. Is Greg Pak writing uh, yeah, that's action? Yeah, the team.
2: So it will be Greg Pak and, um,
0: and Gene. Well, Ian. I'm going to talk to Pak. I want to know what's going to happen in Greg's book while Gene is doing the Kryptonian as Immigrant idea in, in Superman. You
2: yeah, see, I, I, I know uh, a little bit about – I don't know – I, I delve into that yeah. world less because I'm doing a Superboyish thing in the Teen Titans. I don't know if. You, what do you mean? It's been somewhat announced. <clears throat> uh um, The Teen Titans it. Annual, which will come out actually during Convergence, will be one of the few New Fifty Two titles that come out in during Convergence. Will be the return of Superboy, um, and excellent. And basically, the, the editor, the, the super editor, we, we had a long discussion about. And I'm a big fan of of the Connor and the Jeff Johns Connor stuff. Um, yes and he's he's sort of a character that um i don't want to say got lost but his his continuity got very thick (laughs) in the new 52 absolutely no and you know i'll even say initially i appreciated
0: the differences there and it started off as a very interesting sci-fi story but yeah it's gotten like way away from what connor kent was in jeff johnson's hands go on
2: yeah and and, and to me, I mean, to me, Connor Kent is always that guy from Infinite Crisis who comes in at the last second and saves Dick Grayson. Like that moment is yep. just so brilliant, and he's yep. and you know and he, and he's like he to me he's like the Channing Tatum of the DCU. He's the big, sexy, that's very guy. good. That's very good. I agree. And um, anyway, so, so they, they so they they approach me saying we want to sort of um, work with this character get and back. Get, get back to okay. get back to that to, to that level of energy, that Infinite Crisis level of energy um and and popularity um so that begins or sort of in teen titans annual number one i think it's the annual number one which which i'm co-writing with with mr will pfeiffer also
0: okay i was gonna ask yeah all right so you and pfeiffer are working on that yeah so
2: so it's yeah so they brought me in for some plot basically some plot help and then um i i I plotted and then pfeiffer did all the teen titans they would talk with their normal voices and not with my Voices of repetitiveness and all the things, all the, the my writing quirks. So it will still be Pfeiffer's Titans. Um, okay. But yeah, so so that's going to sort of start to be. And please, people, please, if you want to bring back Connor Kent, Superboy, you know, black shirt, jeans, like the the super cool version you have in your head, yeah. tell DC, let them know. This is my plea. <laughs>
0: oh, there you go. Well, uh, hey man, even Le, even in Lemire's
2: hands. Yeah, even yeah yeah Lemire's run that sort of quiet Smallville run that Lemire had, which is so nice. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I love that character. We're gonna, tr- we're gonna do our best to sort of bring back what's sort of awesome about that character.
0: Well, and I hope, and I think you could kind of still carry over the the sci fi elements that they brought in the New Fifty Two to Connor, and kind of make it work. I that was a, man, I, I, you know, this really has become DC bitch fest for me, and you'll forgive no, dude, me. No, dude, no, no, no. This, um,
2: this energy, this that... DC hate energy, is out there, and I, I want to be there to rebut it. <laughs> I well, want to be there no, to be you a That's well, why I'm here. Well, that's that's
0: why I, I appreciate that. And, and no, you know, like Tim Byers and I did this about some other – just in, in general, some of the things that are happening with the big two. But um, that was another difference of Superman that I can appreciate it being interesting from a story standpoint initially. It uh, was too alienating at first was that, OK, they all three exist, Superman, Supergirl and Superboy. And uh, the other two have problems with Superman. And it's like, you know, and again, more of with Superboy, it's just his whole sci-fi background and probably growing in a lab I, in a way that I liked it in the Young Justice cartoon. Oh,
2: I like the Young Justice cartoon.
0: But yeah, that's the thing, man. No, it was, again, too different for, uh, you know, for different sake. I don't know how much of that is residue from the smacking of the the lawsuit where. The one place that the Siegel and Schuster estate still kind of had some teeth uh, was the idea that, yes, Superboy was created by them independently, rejected by DC. And then, of course, conveniently, while they're, uh, you know, no longer with the company. Hey, I think we're going to bring back that Superboy idea that we just thought of (laughs) that just that that just was sitting in a file cabinet. We're not sure how it got
2: here. I've had like maybe. 30 conversations with the editorial about Super Bowl. I don't, they have not brought up that lawsuit or the ownership ones. Maybe that's – I don't know if that's coming at some point. I should probably well, – no, I, I don't kind of, or at least they haven't I, told me about it.
0: I, I kind of thought that was a lot of the reason and – not, and not specifically on that lawsuit, but just a lot of the changes at the New 52 seem to be made changes to distance themselves as much as possible from the original concepts, possibly to just get new readers and have a different take on it. It just seemed convenient that they would less likely have to worry about the estate of Mort Weisinger about Aquaman or uh, you know, <laughs> the guys who created the original Vigilante or whatever. I mean, you know, like I don't know. It just it just again, it seemed like you there was a lot of just change. You know, well, because I know. That was and like I, the and meanest the man guess, who ever worked in comic books. Well, and the only reason why I bring up Mort is because Mort technically is created for co-creating Aquaman. I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, the artist was Paul, and I can't remember his I name. It was pre-Ramona afraid the original, the, the golden age artist of Aquaman. Uh, he's no, he's no uh, Everett uh, Bill Everett. That's all I know. The Submariner creator, of course.
2: Uh, all I have in my mind is him. Just more wise, like him just. <laughs> shouting down joe schuster and like joe schuster crying and it was um uh, I, th-
0: I think we- i think weisinger was the guy that would make like would hold checks in the air and make you like re- you know reach for the check and stuff <laughs> no he was a he's a messed up dude he was a really really messed up. i'm obsessed dude. with those Absolutely. old dc editors
2: i i I tried to write a novel about uh, bob Caniger, um a fiction uh, another version. Him and Julie Schwartz because they – and the, the creation of the – I'm a real big nerd. Uh, how they created the Flash together. They,
0: right, because that's still a whole like who did what.
2: Yeah, yeah that, that, that bizarre combination of of, Can, of um, Kaniger who was like the sort of ladies' man, cool, young, hip writer and Julie Schwartz who was like the nerd of nerds and them sharing an office and not talking to each other and somehow creating one of the most important superheroes that ever walked the earth and revolutionized the industry. <laughs>
0: Well, and yeah, where does Zinfantino and yeah, when, yeah, Yeah, was, Hubert, both of those was guys. inking
2: that book. That's how crazy that was.
0: Yep, yep. No, I know my great regret is, I can live without talking to Chris Claremont again, but uh, it's uh, Joe Hubert, uh, who I had two very nice conversations with, and we were getting ready to you know figure out a time of him coming out War Balloon, and unfortunately he passed. I, and, and I didn't get the opportunity to get him sitting down and really talking, but a few off-the-record conversations about... Uh, you know, his his whole career. I mean, that guy was that guy literally was the his, the walking history of comics. Oh, yeah, dude. What? You know, sh- sharpening Will Eisner's pencils at 13 to, <laughs> you know, everything he did to literally his last days. I mean, you know,
2: uh, and, and and Infantino always reminds me of Cater's because I remember the time Cater sat next to him at a, yep. like a convention at the and they, they they live, yeah, the they live broadcast show. it or whatever and well or they, something I, remember I was confused in my head,
0: but... they try, no they tried to record it and it unfortunately i don't think the recording came uh, out yeah that was would... i could be wrong but i'm I'm pretty sure that's how it went down and it is too bad because no yeah and fantino was a pretty, very cool guy yeah he wouldn't he wouldn't come on the record with me no nah. he was very nice but he's like oh no i i, I don't want to do it on the record i'm like okay nah,
2: nah. yeah dude i worship so, those guys those old guys.
0: oh no they were the men absolutely it's it's fascinating stuff well and again there, the Weisinger-Superman era is great. I, I I cringe and get angry sometimes at the hindsight because Weisinger was messed up and they immediately go, well, that's why we got bugheaded headed Superman or Alan Funt and Candid Camera References or Pat Boone in Superman. Oh. And it's like, no, dummies. No. It It's because comics always reflected current pop they culture. They always will.
2: They always have always will.
0: Right. And, and the comic strips were doing the exact same thing and it's like, yeah. No, it was it wasn't about Superman and, and you know, like the Luther stuff was fine, but that yeah, it was just as important for them to make fun of a current fad in Superman in some way as it was to get Brainiac back in there for another story.
2: Of course, of course, yeah.
0: So yeah, you know. Well, again, I mean sometimes I'll hear and read read blogs and read and hear podcasts like Ah oh, Moy Weisinger, my God, look at some of the weird stuff he came up with. And it's like, yeah, but it wasn't that weird stuff. No, that's wrong. Wrong. No, Jimmy Olsen as a caveman beetle had nothing to do with Mort Weisinger's psychosis.
2: <laughs> nothing. They didn't care. They did it was it was about we need to sell issues and move issues and right. leave them on time. That's what it meant.
0: Exactly. And kids like Beatles. Put the Beatles in the comics.
2: Well we don't we don't know. Make them caveman Beatles. Perfect. Picture of a planet. Pictures of a planet are selling. Put planets on the covers of everything.
0: Yes, uh, when uh, Kirby was doing his mixed media and you'd put photographs in uh, the comics and stuff.
2: Oh, yeah, that's so beautiful, oh, man.
0: Like Galactus' uh, space station and stuff is like half of a Mattel toy or something like that.
2: <laughs> yeah, and you uh, know. Reef floating in the negative zone with the background of that grave. Yeah, yes. Nice. Say um, There yeah, you go. You. All
0: right, so, so well, this, this is cool, and it's good to hear that Dick Grayson's book will... Time or into the DC Universe uh, uh, post event are uh, without giving anything away. Does Dick have a role in the event
2: the the convergence events?
0: Yeah, or you know, not the two issue one, the eight part whatever it's called, Regurgence. Right? I, I'm an asshole. I forget what it's called. Uh,
2: I, I I honestly am. Uh, there's some aspects of it that I know, and some aspects I don't. And I don't know. what I'm supposed to give away.
0: Sure, but it, it does. Does it change your guys' plans for what the book has because all of a sudden there is a new status quo in the DC universe? Can you say that much? I don't know if
2: I can even say that much. All
0: right. That's fair. Even that even that kind of ambiguous answer is appreciated. I'm so sorry. sorry. I'm
2: so sorry. That no, seems no, no, like no. Such, a, no, no. such a terrible thing to say. Okay. I can tell you that, that the issue after Convergence is written, and it's an awesome issue. Does that help? Probably not in any okay. way. Okay.
0: Oh, but that's fine, and that's good to know. It features um, my
2: favorite moment so far in the comic book—a one-page splash. that I can't wait for people to read. In June, cool. goddamn, it to wait so long.
0: <laughs> so you got you got Grayson, you got Omega Men. Is there another regular book? You said there's a couple announcements. Oh, uh, yeah, you
2: know, I'm doing plotting Teen Titans. So I'm, I'm co-writing the annual that's coming out, and then plotting Teen Titans. Um, and I just did some vertigo. And is Pfeiffer is scripting Piper in, script. in your plot? I, I work co-plotting and Pfeiffer scripting. Okay. Um, Will's the nicest person in comics. He's so...
0: You don't have to deep. tell me. I'm old. He's fan.
2: wonderful to write with. Um, it's, it's, so, it's so different from Tim, because Tim is... A dick. Yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> well, but you're
0: doing... Am I right? Tim is co-plotting with you on Grayson. You're scripting. You are co-plotting with Piper,
2: and Pfeiffer scripting. No, so Tim and I, we are co-plotting together, and then we basically trade off issues. So we, okay. script, we basically script every other issue, or, every, or sometimes we go two and two. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't think we ever go three and three. Um, yeah, well, it's, Tim and I sort of look at it like um, anything you can do, I can do better. That's basically our relationship. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We, we 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 get on we get on the phone. we're the two of us are like a comedy pair when we get together. We're just p- passing off references, and I'm making fun of him because he's a huge He Man nerd, and he's making yes he is. And he, he, like, and, and we're we're so from different schools of comic books. <clears throat> Pardon me, because um, he's very influenced by uh, Grant Morrison. He's sort of his guy, and um, and my guys are the 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 Moore and Millers, sort are of darker centers. So he's he's writing sort of these m- much more like in Intellectually intense and sort of coming out Of like things with jokes and References and I'm like everything is Horrible my parents are dead uh, And um and- <laughs> <laughs> Sound like Lego yeah, just Batman, like Lego Batman. That's exactly that's basically the, the, what I have in my Head is Lego Batman and um <laughs> And And so and we find this happy medium And um and working with Will is completely different because Will's was like yeah dude Whatever man we'll get it. we'll make it work Everything's cool Everything'll be fine. Everything's awesome. It's it's all Lego, basically. It's it's, it's just it comes back to Lego <laughs> um, That's cool. Very yeah. good. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Uh, look for a great of grace, and it's it's usually it's, it's written by one of us, and then co-plotted by both. So you can see which ones are Tim's and which ones okay. are mine.
0: Back in the day when we first met, you uh, you wrote a book called uh, Under a Crowded Sky. What's a once crowded sky? A once crowded sky. Sorry. What?
2: Sorry. How dare you get a book that came out three I know. years ago? It's wrong. I'm. I'm I
0: understand. I have my hard copy, but I'm also looking at it on my Kindle. <laughs>
2: All right, sweet. Say. That's why
0: I got that big. Um camera. Would you would you want to go back to that? I mean, and or uh or superheroes in novels?
2: Um I don't think I'm going to go back to superheroes in novels. I started writing a sequel to that, and I wrote the first I don't know, 30 pages of it, and I read it over and it was no good. It was it was quite terrible, and I'm like, I don't right, maybe I'll put this to the side a little bit. Um no, my, my next novel I wrote, and it's on my computer, um, is more, okay. of a, it's more of a war novel. It's about the CIA experience. Um, which war? Uh, I guess the Global War on Terror. What would you call it? I don't know.
0: Oh, the current. Yeah, the, the current, current war. Yeah, stats. the current status. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, is there – I mean, it is the War on Terror, I suppose, because I was going to say as opposed to the Cold War,
2: which technically is over. Yeah, they call it the GWAT. That's what they call it inside the government, Global War on Terror. Oh, yeah, I like that. An acronym. All right. Um, yeah, a lot of people get that. You you often see people get the medal for war. For, that's what they call it when you get the medal. Um, if you fought. how's Holly, how's Hollywood doing on uh, covering
0: uh, counterterrorism and the and the current uh, espionage environment?
2: I mean, they're doing all right. I mean, it's it's funny. We've sort of shifted a lot. My complaint about the latest Hollywood is is um, everything is PTSD now, which I think makes people feel like they're saying something when they're maybe not saying as much as they think they are post-traumatic uh,
0: yeah. stress disorder for people who don't know the anagram. But yeah, this, this,
2: sort, this sort of idea that once you've you know, been to battle or been in combat, you come back and you sort of leave part of your soul there and sort of suffer for the rest of your life. And um, that's a real thing. Like, I mean, I don't only don't really downplay that at all. It's a, it's a horrible thing. I've suffered from parts of it myself. Um, not that I was in the kind of combat that the army's in, but I've been in some very fairly dangerous situations. And like anyone who was over there, you know, I jump every time there's a firework, and and um, and I feel those memories in ways that are just so bizarre that you you can't even describe how you could just be turned down a street and you're driving down the street and you're like, wow, I'm back in Iraq, you know. Um, but like the media's gotten stuck on that idea, and sort of that once you've been to war, you come back and like six of your friends died, and you're sad about it, and it's it's almost gotten cliche, and it doesn't really discuss, I think, what the actual experience was of these million people who went over um, and fought in these wars and came back and they were so they were very bizarre wars they were like the enemy was not as as clear as you think and it was our home was closer than it should have been and I don't think they've quite gotten the balance right I think they're sort of they're caught up in this like uh, they're caught up in the cliches so far they need to get beyond it what what's
0: always fascinated me uh, about the the last few engagements of of soldiers is the use of mercenaries more. And of course it was, I think, uh, I, I really hate when there is a lack of truth, when some sort of marketing department is, is brought in to come up with a nicer word for mercenaries, <laughs> because like there, there, there were contractors. You'd always hear about contractors. And it's like, these people aren't putting parquet floors in a bunch of living rooms. Like when when they're talking about contractors, and it just made me very cynical about the way uh, the engagements in Iraq and uh, and Afghanistan were were fought. With it seemed like a lot more. Uh, what's the group? Is it Blackwater? Yeah,
2: Blackwater. Is that the, yeah. is that
0: one? Of, yeah, you know, like it seems like those companies were fighting American wars more than the American soldier was, and that I don't feel gets covered enough in. The uh, entertainment, you know, that 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 is trying to show that that side of the 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 battle and stuff. I like movies like The Herlocker and I see what you're saying too about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and everything. And and I haven't seen American Sniper. Did you I see haven't it?
2: Seen, I, I kind of, I don't want to see it just because having been there, I'm not so eager to. Maybe that's my own poster I, I, I don't. I'm that. not so eager to sort of, sit yeah, through a movie and see it all again. I, I don't know. And like little, yeah, little I just, things well, will start bothering me. Like that's not the kind of phone we use. Like that kind of stuff. I'll get stuck on it. I'll be like, ah, that's I could appreciate bullshit. that. I
0: use that phone. Dude. How can you say how long you were in oh, the field? Uh,
2: Iraq? I wasn't there for very long. I don't want to say like I was there. I was there for about like five months or six months. So don't don't don't
0: don't. Don't get hey, yourself. Don't man. don't don't yeah. think I
2: did like six tours. I, I spent more time overseas doing other stuff in bad places. But um, don't I didn't do like like three hard tours like some people have. Don't get me wrong. Okay. Um but uh yeah i just it's it's not something i'm so eager to see although i i don't know i've heard mixed things about it and i'll see it like I, I never watched zero dark 30 either
0: i was going to ask okay okay um, so my pro- how about how about older espionage like uh things like stories set in the cold war my, you I know really it. for me well you know that well yeah that's the cheese ball stuff and i and i love i love 60s secret agent <laughs> film and television. That was oh, dude, that please. I'm you know I, I was born in '64, so I was a five year old kid. Absolute. I mean, seriously, that is my bigger heartache about the Bill Cosby scandal. Is not about the Cosby <laughs> show. It's I Spy because Al, I mean, and and again, in this time when we want heroes and we we talk about it in the Weissman interview, and that's why I'm referencing this. We want non-white heroes. Bill Cosby's character was like a cool funny Mr. Spock. That's the best way to describe his character on I Spy. He he had all the knowledge. he was the smart guy of the duo and he was funny when he needed to be and he could throw down and and, and be tough in an action thing and you bought it. Cosby was great. He won 3 Emmys for for uh for I Spy. Wow. I mean it wasn't it's not a coincidence that he was winning Emmys then and stuff. And it was huge and and it's that's why that's a bad scandal. But that well, said there's, there's other reasons no, it's a
2: bad scandal, probably.
0: You know, but yeah, and all that – you know well, no, no, yeah, of course. Yes, let's be Yeah, yeah, maybe this yeah, I think so. But also, uh no, back to like what I was gonna say is like the Cold War, but for me too, it's that immediately after World War Two period of the Marshall Plan and rebuilding Europe, uh movies like the Third yeah, Man. I
2: love the Third it, Man. Not, oh man.
0: Okay, yeah, like is that stuff still Interesting. I mean, yeah. The How do you man perceive interesting. that? interesting. You about
2: a novelist who gets involved in a spy thriller. It's like, oh my god! It's by, by two yep. passions. Yeah. Two.
0: Well, and I mean, well, that's true. And I guess you are writing spy fiction and everything. So, what so on invent? one the
2: level, Yuku Clock. It's the best line in cinema history.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was just out a couple of weeks ago. I know exactly <laughs> what. It is. That's that's the thing. Orson Welles is in that movie for like twelve minutes. And brilliant. And it's like. Because the entire movie, they talk about him, and then he makes that. Then he finally makes that entrance and has that amazing Ferris wheel scene with Joseph Cotton. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all that said, of course Bernard Lee, as you know, mm-hmm. M is uh, one of, is the uh, is the uh, foot the, uh, police, yeah, the police. You know police the slaps them uh... in the face. Right, hello sir. <laughs> Sorry about that, sir. <laughs> but anyway. Uh that all said, no. So you on one on one end, you can you can still appreciate the fi- the romance of the fiction and obviously get inspired for it for your own stories, and that's interesting that you're able to tell a super spy story and not you know, or maybe you do. Maybe you, that's part of the problem that you you know you you deal with the twitching as you're uh, as you're in you know writing something interesting and creative.
2: I don't well, know. I, I, I didn't. I left CIA because I had a child, basically. Um, I mean, I was—I mm-hmm. was—I did counterterrorism overseas. I sort of—I liked going to war zones. I mean, not liked—I don't know if that's the right word—but I, I was proud. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah, oh sure, so that, that's, Absolutely. that's a part of the job I, that I um, enjoyed or were stimulated by or whatever. Um, and so I didn't. I, and and I, I I'm super proud of my time there and, and what and uh, what my colleagues were doing. And uh, and leaving it was very hard for me um, to make that decision. My wife's a lawyer, and you know she didn't want to live her life overseas and uh and i didn't want to live half my life away from my kids you know like i said i was raised i my dad i didn't sort of want to give them that life um so when i watch things that are close to being cia i either have two i have two reactions Number one, i'm like that's crazy it never did happen that way or if it's good i have the reaction of oh man i made the wrong decision i want to go back <laughs> like like it's either, either it's it's bad and i'm mad at it or it's good and it makes me feel bad um so I, I I tend to sort of not watch because of those movies I'm never like in the mood to be like oh man I want to sort of critique I, yeah I don't watch uh, like The Americans like I watch that that's, that's actually made by a former CIA I love guy. that yeah, show it's, it's
0: I love it's that fantastic.
2: show fantastic um and because how about
0: Allegiance the new NBC one have you I, have you tried don't that don't one try, yet?
2: It, yeah yeah I go on that, but I, and I, I I don't watch Homeland uh, Homeland because a Homeland because of course of that, yeah yeah modern terrorism I don't watch that for, just for that reason if it's good. Okay. I'll be mad at myself, and if it's bad, I'll be mad at the show. So I don't, I don't watch it, so it doesn't do it for me. But,
0: How about a show like 24? That was, <laughs> you know, obviously. So well, that's the thing. It's, you know, I, I can appreciate the laugh and everything. No, I love 24. I was a 24 addict. Okay.
2: Up until like season six, like when the Chinese got involved, I think I was out. Uh, but okay. uh, yeah, dude, okay. I, was a, well, I was a 24 act when I was still um, NCAA. So we, I used to watch it while and we used to be like, wow, we wish we could fricking dial that up on our cell phone, The to... <laughs> whatever the beautiful technology this guy has. I don't know where he's getting it. Isn't that awesome?
0: I understand. And, you know, it's sad. Even being in, in a mundane business like radio, uh, we'll, we'll go see a movie and it takes place in a radio station. And they are so, like, up to the minute with their technology and everything. And we're just laughing. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, who is writing the checks for this <laughs> radio station? Because that is not real radio at all. I mean, you know. That... I think we, we just upgraded to the IMAX. So anyway, no, I'm kidding. It's not.
2: Yeah. It's the same in indie industry. It's like when, whenever you read an article in the paper about something you actually know about, you're like, wait a second, 50% of this is wrong. Is 50% of everything <laughs> I read wrong. Um, anyone, know, yeah. I mean, yeah. um, yeah. Whoa. So yeah, spy spy. <laughs> so yeah. So I used to be a spy and it bothers me. That's basically what my be All
0: right then. No, no, it's, no, it's interesting. And I do appreciate you opening up about that. I think that's, <laughs> That's no that's cool. Um I I think uh, I think things are going good, Tom. I I don't know. I I think uh you know, am I missing anything? Is
2: there is there anything else we haven't covered that no, we should? Can I talk up Omega Man just for a second just cuz it's my
0: By all means, no, I'd like obviously that's the book that is the one book they've announced that please tell us as much as you can. I can't
2: I can't talk everything about what's going on, but what, so what Make the pitch,
0: though. I can't, make the, I can't, I can't even give you... Why right, should I care about the Omega Man coming I can't even give you the time.
2: pitch. I can't even do that. I can't even tell you the one-line pitch, which is beautiful, because they haven't even announced like, the plot of it and who's behind it. Um, but let, let me just, just tell, sort of give you the background of where we're going with it, which is basically, I pitched it, and they, they wanted to make this hardcore. They wanted to be from the CIA background. And I walked into the office of Brian Cunningham, um, who's the Justice League editor at DC. And he used to be the editor of Wizard, Magazine back of the day, yes, and uh, and Wizard actually brought me back into comics. I know I, I I used to read that pretty religiously, and then when I read it again, like in two thousand six, I was like, oh my god, what's, what's like, Civil War is happening, and more someone's doing Superman. There's like, oh, I was like, this is amazing, and Jeff Johns was doing this relaunch of Green Lantern. Um, mm-hmm. I actually have and I have the issue, and I like put I, I like over oh, like, Brian Cunningham's name is on it, and so I showed it to him. I was like, look, you brought me in into your fucking fault, that I'm in this condition. You and you and Suntris, so are the two people. I blame. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I sat in his office and his office the, – the, he can't possibly get mad at this – but the walls are pasted with these um, like the, the greatest DC posters you have ever seen. He has the Dark Knight on his wall and the Watchmen's up on his wall and um, Legion of Superheroes. And it's like the, the, these series that I worship, sort of the late 80s post-crisis series or, or same time as crisis series of DC when DC got um, really attached to the real world just for a few years – like, 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 when they were taking these amazing risks and the, the comics seemed dirty and, and very interesting when they, when you had like the the five year later Legion and, yes. um, and what the shit? question, oh, the question, yeah, Danny O'Neill's question and, yeah, Dennis Clano, um, of course, and, uh, Wolfman's Titans run got really interesting then. Sure. Wolfman's, uh, Vigilante. Yeah. Oh, and the Vig- yeah, and Vigilante. Yeah. Dude. Oh, my God. Yeah. Love that book. And, um, and people were being influenced by the swamp, and like a lot of, sure. and, and I was looking at those posters I'm sitting in the office and I'm, I'm like, well, let's just do that again. Let's, let's get, let's be as good as that was. Like, let's not do fight a bad guy this month and they win. And then you fight a bad guy next month and you win. Let's do something that is as deep and as interesting as those series, because there's no one to stop us. I'm the writer. You're the editor. And he's, and, and, and he's like, yes, that's what I want. And I was like, well, we'll, we'll do it together. Um, and and so that, that that's the feeling we're gonna try to go with Omega Man. We're trying to we're gonna try to get back to, to that excitement, that 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 wonderful creative time of of eighties um, DC. I mean, it's gonna be modern. It's gonna be ground, ground grounded in today and today's threats, but 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 that idea of how good those comics were and to to bring that back into DC is, is that's my whole goal with Omega Man. Uh,
0: that's excellent. And as as I said at the beginning, I hope that the powers that be allow you guys to tell your story. Uh, and, and give you the, the freedom that you will need to do that, because I do believe that's what was happening back then in the 80s in DC's prime. Uh, they were very like open to from the top down. I mean, that's the thing. Jeanette Kahn came in in the late 70s and this was her prime and everything. And this is what she was working towards of, yeah, we need to shake things up. We 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 can't keep doing things the way they were doing things because it's it's not working anymore. And it's time to do something different. So this, I, and like I said, that this is what the hope is with the new half of uh, the DC line. It's forty nine now. I know it's not fifty two. <laughs> I uh, know there's room for me to pitch things. Why am I doing that phone? Unless, you? unless there's three books that we haven't announced yet. Several of them are Tom King's, <laughs> and uh, very excited. Hope you uh, hope you like it. Hope you like God. Uh, God, remember Warrior. All right, uh, now he's going to be Warrior. He's just really sad. and He's like worried about stuff a lot. All right, it's going to be good. I think you'll I like him. I got no warrior. I
2: met the deal in person, and I swear to God, the first time I go, I was like, man, Suntress really has you nailed. I was like, no, don't say that out loud. <laughs> oh, you should have totally Play said cool. that. And he Play ran, cool. Because I, I need to – because,
0: no, I need to know the reaction. So that you got to be my plan. <laughs> Tom, sending you out in the field again. I know you missed your spy no, work. Yes. okay, good. So it. this is it's your assignment. Mission. All
2: right, good. I am her assignment. Exactly. No, no. Like,
0: seriously, go – God. Dan, I got to tell you, no offense, but Suntress really can do an amazing deal. <laughs> he just—he just, and, and hits just me in the face. seriously. You're done. You're say, done in say, John Suntress, Seriously, because he knows me by name. He knows. He knows who I am. I, you know, and 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 I, I love Dan. I, I truly, I miss Dan, and, and I miss Jeff too. And I know they're both ridiculously busy, but it does make. I won't deny that part of my frustration is I can't talk to those guys anymore. And that's too bad because across the street, I still talk to Joe Casada, and I can talk to, and I still talk to Axel Alonso. And it kind of disappoints me that I, I don't have that that access anymore. Uh, and again, I'm not looking for the secret recipe. These are interesting, changing times, as and as many bad things as as I said about DC. I hope that if it gets back to them, this part does too. And and I just think the entire fandom is, without getting into secret recipe stuff, curious in terms of what you think, because the earth is literally changing under your feet. It's not the same comic market. It was five years ago, certainly not 10 or 15 years ago. What does that mean? Isn't it interesting? And without giving away company secrets, yeah. Like, you know, what's it like? What does it feel like? I like hearing about that stuff. I'm getting that from people like you. When you come on word balloon, I'd be very interested in hearing the perspectives of a Jeff Johns and a Dan to and a Jim Lee, and whomever. But uh, I don't know if that will ever met Jeff
2: I met Jeff for the first does. time at this, and I, I was thinking, like, I haven't heard an interview. I remember your word balloon interview with him from, like, it must have been 06 or something.
0: It was, no, it was, uh, the last time I talked to Jeff was 2009.
2: Oh, yeah, I have, um, oh, God. So oh. it's been,
0: yeah, it's been, uh, just, it's just under Dude, 60. He was so now. cool. He was down to earth. He's a great He's... guy, and that's the thing. I know it's, I know it's not personal, I know that they're very busy and I also know that they, they are not the final word on, on who talks and who doesn't. So I, I can appreciate that it's coming from a higher place. It's kind of silly though. And also, I mean, you know, if maybe when I become CNN's John Suntress and word balloon is following reliable sources, uh, then maybe they'll be up. <laughs> but right now, my little, my little uh, penny whistle uh, show and stuff like that. No, I'm not, I'm, I'm, Far too small of a potato to be considered.
2: <laughs> oh, don't be. You're no small right, potato I'm to me, man. So I'm telling
0: you. Oh, thanks, man. No, no. And I, hey, no, I like what I hey, ten years in, everything's going fine. And it's because guys like you show up and you give good conversation, as you've done. So uh Woo-hoo. no, good luck with good luck with Omega Man. I think you're Who is better, uh, me I, or Fowler?
2: Just so he knows. Just so he knows.
0: Me, right? Oh fuck! Fa- no, 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 no. That's apples ah! and oranges. You know. And also, Fowler's got like six or seven hours on you. It I does.
2: think. Oh, you asked him like? Oh, you no, asked he... two questions then.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no. I love Tom. Tom's, Tom is my friend, uh, you know, man. And, really, we're, we're... and I know that I, I would not have met you had it not been for wow. Tom Fowler. And I mean, that's the no. I love Tom, and Tom's a great guy. And it's very funny because really, within the last two months, I'm like, you know, I need to check in with Fowler and and get him back because no, it's. Yeah, when Fowler comes
2: on, I know we're going to have a two-hour conversation. So it's uh, it's always good. Oh man, I'm desperate to work for that guy, work with that guy again for him. Yeah, um, yeah, dude. He's a he's a modern genius, and none of people know Tom Fowler.
0: No, great guy, very great guy. Um, so, but uh, no, good uh, good conversation. Thanks, Tom, man. King. All right, first-timers, Tom King and uh, Matt Hawkins on Word Balloon today. Hopefully, uh, we'll have both back on soon. And it was a pleasure to talk to both of them. I hope you enjoyed today's conversations. It was brought to you today by In Stock Trades at InStockTrades.com. There are great deals going on at In Stock Trades on things like Scalped Book One. The deluxe edition hardcover is 45% off. It's just $16.49. RM Guerra and Jason Aaron at their best. Uh, you can also get... Uh, from Jerry Duggan, Hawkeye versus Deadpool. The trade paperback is forty five percent off, nine dollars and thirty four cents. John Hickman, Salvador Larocca, Avengers trade paperback, volume five, Adapt or Die, forty five percent off, ten dollars and ninety nine cents. From Jeff Darrow, Shaolin Cowboy. The hardcover for the Shemp Buffet is fifty percent off. It's just nine dollars and ninety nine cents. My guy Jeff Lemire and company doing Justice League United. Volume 1 is Justice League Canada. 50% off, $12.49. Just the tip of the iceberg. Don't forget if your orders are $50 or more at InStockTrades.com, you get free shipping. There are other great deals happening right now. Check them all out for yourself. InStockTrades.com. John Suntress saying, thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter under my name, John Word Balloon. You can follow me on Facebook under my name, John Suntras. The Word Balloon Network is there. Uh, wouldn't mind if you said li- you like uh, me and you like uh, the Word Balloon Network. That would be great. If you like the show and you get it through iTunes, if you haven't rated the show or written a review, if you could do one or the other or both, that would be terrific. It helps us out and uh, helps uh, you know keep me in the top ten of uh, comic book podcasts. And uh, you know, just lets people know where to find Word Balloon, which it's always more and more difficult to do. Uh, I'm on Stitcher. Uh, you know, if you uh, the best thing you can always do to uh, help Word Balloon out is let a friend know if uh, they're not if listening, but they like podcasts, they're looking for interesting podcasts. Let them know. And a lot of people have been doing that on Facebook and Twitter, and I thank you for that. I've also been getting a lot of great emails lately and uh, Google voicemails as well. And I'm going to be playing those uh, in the uh, days ahead. I'm sorry I haven't lately. I, I just, you know, it's a full show today. So uh, I wanted to uh, get to the interviews and give you as much conversation as we can. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. Keep looking for more neat stuff. Word Berlin's 10th anniversary coming up later on in just a few weeks. It's uh, May 10th of uh, 2015. It'll be 10 years. And uh, neat guests are on the way between now and then and beyond. It's going to be a great 2015. I'm happy you're joining me for the conversations that we're having this year and beyond as Word Balloon celebrates anniversary number 10 later this year. Until next time, thanks for listening. Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2015.